Hey everyone, Jonathan here with a quick message before we start today's show. It's October, and over this month, we are on the road to 400 episodes of the Weekly Stuff podcast. That big milestone episode will be released on October 25th at the end of the month, and along the way, we have a great month of episodes planned. We also want you, the listener, to be involved with us for this, so please make sure you're subscribed to the show uh, in your podcast app of choice or on our YouTube channel, and leave a rating or a review in your podcast app of choice, and reach out to us online to tell us about your favorite memories from 400 episodes of podcasts. Your favorite episode, your favorite review, your favorite argument, whatever it is, I would love to hear about it and tell it to the rest of the listeners. Just message me at Jonathan Lack on Twitter and we'll include it in a listener mail segment in the 400th episode. This has been one hell of a journey and I am so excited for the next month and we're so happy to have you along for the ride. Now, on to the show. And welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show, an episode long in the making, um, with The Matrix Resurrections coming out in December, the fourth film in the, the ongoing Matrix saga. We thought we would finally take a look back at the original three Matrix films by the Wachowskis, starting with today, the original 1999 sensation, The Matrix. And I have to say, Sean, getting to do an episode on The Matrix at episode 398 of this fucking podcast <laughs> definitely makes me feel like this podcast still has some legs in it, you know, um, if we're only getting to this now. Yeah, it definitely feels like, it, I mean, it, it's it's an interesting thing watching, watching the movie because it kind of reminds you that The Matrix, for, for better and for worse, um, like, it's a pretty actually contained franchise. Like, it doesn't have a huge... Like, so you don't have, like, graphic novels and stuff like that coming out all the time for The Matrix or anything like that. Um, so there's never been a good, like, excuse for us to go back to it. And then now that they're finally making that fourth movie, and we've been doing this thing over the past couple of years of going back and watching the Star Wars prequels and the Spider-Man movies from the early 2000s and stuff like that, and kind of reassessing those really influential movies from um, kind of our childhood, it's about, it's about time we finally talk about The Fucking Matrix. About the most important one of them, like the yes. one that like really marks the delineation line for me between like the doldrums of 90s pop cinema that's really bad, and then The Matrix comes in and blows everything out of the water, and not everything after it is perfect, but then there is this like, not just because of The Matrix, but I do think it's interesting how this like signals the start of some really interesting pop filmmaking, like the stuff you mentioned, like Lord of the Rings, which would have been produced simultaneously with this. All of that kind of stuff. Um, this is like the start of a really interesting moment, which we've chronicled talking about 
Lord of the Rings and Sam Raimi's Spider-Man and the Star Wars prequels and Chris Nolan's Batman and all of that stuff. So, um, and The Matrix is, it's about as good as this kind of thing gets. I watched it for the 50,000th time last night and I never, ever, ever walk away from that movie anything less than breathless and blown away. Yeah, I, I think it's it is like easily amongst the best movies we've ever done like a full podcast on. Like yeah. it is just it is if like you want to make an argument for there being a perfect movie, like The Matrix is one of those that feels like I don't know anything you would change about this film other than maybe some of like the pure like CG digital effects could be slightly tweaked now. Um but even generally most of that stuff holds up phenomenally well because it's it's a well-made movie so they knew how to shoot for the effects work they had at the time um but it's yeah it's just basically a perfect fucking movie and it's yeah it's yeah awesome. i'm so so excited to do this and uh all the other stuff we're gonna do you know if, if you haven't heard some of our recent episodes where we've been kind of planning this on the fly we're definitely gonna do matrix reloaded and revolutions the main three we're gonna do the animatrix because it's cool and why not Yes. And we're going to try to do something on the video games Enter the Matrix and The Path of Neo, which Sean is now holding up to yes. the camera, his Xbox copies. Why did you get those for Xbox, by the way? Because I my original Xbox still works. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that's that's the main reason why. And yeah. interestingly enough, the the complete game save for The Path of Neo that from when I rented it back in 2005 from Blockbuster is still on that Xbox. So I can load up a full complete game save of Path of Neo right now if I wanted to. That's fucking wild. Wow. Yes. Um, yeah, I grabbed Enter the Matrix on PS2 so I could do it on the, the PC emulator really easily. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's wild, Sean. Um, I thought about grabbing them for GameCube, maybe, because I have my Wii here and I could do that. But probably just easiest to emulate it. But since you have your Xbox there, that, that makes sense. Are you going to play them with the Duke? I, my Duke no longer works, so I've got whatever they called the revision, that first revision of the controller. Which, let me tell you, uh, I played like five minutes of Enter the Matrix just to make sure that the disc worked and everything. Um, and... I did not remember that the you shoot the gun in that game with it's either the black button or the white button. Which what? if I was using the Duke controller, that would be like physically impossible to do, um, <laughs> because Enter the Matrix was made before uh, video game control schemes were standardized on video game consoles. Right. Oh my god. That's maybe, how old maybe, this shit we're talking about is. Yes. Maybe another good reason to emulate if you want to play along, because you can rebind controls, just uh, just in case you're, you want to play along at home. But yeah, we will we will get to all of this, at least like the main three before Matrix Resurrections, and uh, we'll see. We've got a lot to get through by the end of this year, but um, that is all on the agenda for our Matrix party. And I gotta say, Sean, after doing the first one here, I am very motivated to get to the next one as soon as possible, because these yes. are fun. Yeah. Uh -huh. All right, but that will be our main topic today. We will talk about The Matrix. Obviously, we think it's good. I don't... I feel like The Matrix is like Citizen Kane. If you don't think it's at least, like, good, I'm not sure you should be watching movies, so... Yeah, it's it's like... It's like it's such a perfect movie that I don't even know, like, as a joke, how you could do, like, a... Try to do a, like, takedown of The Matrix. Like, I, it's just as... The movie doesn't give you the space to even try. No, no. Unless you want to prove yourself an idiot like the Nostalgia Critic or something. Like, I think sure. You, yeah, yeah. If you want to be a really piece of shit internet uh, critic. But we're not. We're good internet critics. So, there you go. Uh, but, Sean, no news today. But I think we're going to have a meaty stuff segment. Because this week was uh, my birthday. My birthday was on Friday. I turned 29. Happy um, birthday. 
thank you. And I had a fucking great birthday because in addition to like hanging out with friends and stuff like that, that was nice. Um, Friday was the release date of Metroid Dread for the mm-hmm. Nintendo Switch, the game they made just for me and my birthday. And the release, the long delayed release of the new James Bond film, No Time to Die. And so my birthday basically consisted of going to No Time to Die with friends and then going out to dinner with them afterwards. And that was great. And then going home and playing the shit out of Metroid Dread until like one in the morning. Um, And it was a very good birthday because I could not have asked for a better present than No Time to Die, which allayed my years-long anxiety that Daniel Craig would go out on a really bad Bond movie because Spectre was terrible and I love Daniel Craig's Bond. And then going home and getting to play Metroid Dread, where I just felt fucking spoiled because that game is a miracle. Um, So I guess I'll talk about No Time to Die first. I think people on here know that I like James Bond. I wouldn't call myself a super fan or anything, but I definitely know a lot about it. I actually, there was a... People always think this is so funny when I tell them this, but at uh, CU Boulder, where you and I both went to school... Um, one of my film classes was a James Bond film class Mm -hmm. that one of my professors, who's a huge James Bond nut, um, taught every uh, summer semester. And so I did that. And that's where, that was actually really cool because the Blu-rays had just come out and we had the nicest screening space I've ever been in at that school. And we just showed all the movies on this big, you know, widescreen, you know, projection on the new Blu-rays. It was really cool. And I've read a lot of the Ian Fleming books and all of that. But, like, you know, Daniel Craig is very much my James Bond, our James Bond, because he's been doing it since you and I have known each other, Sean. Yes. I mean, maybe even a little before, because you and I met in eighth grade, and he his first movie is November 2006. So I would have just turned 14. You would have turned 14, like, a week after that movie came out. Yeah, like, to put it in perspective, while, like, all of the Daniel Craig movies wouldn't necessarily make sense to do this because of the obvious huge span of time they take place over, Casino Royale absolutely fits in that same window we've been doing with, like, because one of the other things we did for our, like, looking back at those movies was the Bourne trilogy was also Uh in that time period. So it's, like, Casino Royale is very much in that, like, us being, like, sort of pre-adolescence to, like, early teenage years of that kind of big watershed series of like 1999 to like 2008 ish of like yeah. really great pop cinema you know and and we don't have time to do it this year but maybe next year i would love to do maybe a series on the craig films and just do the five because i know you haven't seen all of them yeah um and I've they seen are casino royale and i've seen spyfall and that's it or skyfall spyfall, spyfall is, is the bad the doctor who episode doctor yes episode, yeah um, because Christian Bell just thought that was so funny. Skyfall, Spyfall, yeah, there we go. Yep. That's the, that's the level of writing we've had on Doctor Who lately. Yeah, that movie was like three years old also by the time they made that episode yeah. of Doctor Who. So. Yeah. <laughs> More, that was like 2019. That movie's from 2012, Sean. That movie's 10 years old. No, that's not true. That, that no, movie I'm... only came out like five years ago. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> anyway, well, next year will be the 60th anniversary of Bond. Skyfall was the 50th. So maybe that will be our excuse to do some, uh, at least revisit the five Daniel Craig films. Because the thing about No Time to Die is it's an ending, and it's really good. It is an actual, and this is something no James Bond has ever had. Not the James Bond of Ian Fleming's books, because Ian Fleming died writing The Man with the Golden Gun and never wrote where he would have like ended the series. Um, and then all of the different James Bonds have gone out on bad movies. Like Sean Connery's last one is Diamonds Are Forever, which is bad. Roger Moore's last one is A View to a Kill, which is really bad. Comes after Octopussy. Um, 
Timothy Dalton's last one is, well, he only does two. And I love his second movie. It's License to Kill. It's the craziest Bond movie. It's the one that's basically based on Miami Vice. And James right. Bond just loses his fucking shit. It's not necessarily a good Bond movie, but it's very entertaining. And then Pierce Brosnan's last one is Die Another Day. So none of these go out on a good movie, let alone anything like an actual story arc. Which I think people think because of like the movies Bond has never had, but in the Ian Fleming books, he very much does have like an internal continuity. Like No Time to Die has a scene early on where James Bond goes and visits the grave of Vesper Lind. And I think a lot of people think, oh, they're doing that because everyone loved Eva Green and Casino Royale and all of that. Ian Fleming's Bond does that several times. Like that is a thing in the books. Like he's thinking about Vesper Lind through like the end of what Fleming wrote. So they've never in the movies managed to have like an internal character arc for Bond over multiple films. And with Craig, they've really tried that. And it has been really great sometimes. And it has not worked at all sometimes in Spectre. But No Time to Die, I think, is Craig's second best film after Casino Royale. I think it's a, a touch above Skyfall for me. It is a magnificently made movie. I think it is the best directed James Bond film in the 60-year history of the franchise. It's directed by Kerry Fukunaga, who is just what maybe the most talented filmmaker they've ever tapped to do one of these. And he really brings his own style to it. The movie has just this incredible grasp of tone. It really leans into the thing Casino Royale did of Craig's Bond being an assassin. He is like a scrappy, violent man and like in a scrappy, violent world. And it does that really, really well while still having like wit and humor and heart, which is also the other half of that Casino Royale formulation, I think. Um, but it is visually just rapturous. It is just on a level of like sequence, like formal construction of movie sequences. It is just impeccably made. I'm really blown away by it. There are some action scenes in this one that are easily the best stuff Craig has had. There's a one take near the end of the movie that is just insane. Um it's, it's just really good. And more than anything, it is very like engaged in the character of Bond and trying to wrap up the Craig era in a way that brings some consistency to this character, which the Craig era has not always had, because I think it's been a little split on how they want to treat James Bond in these like five movies. And I think this one manages to kind of put it all together in a way that makes him feel like a very consistent character who had a beginning with Casino Royale, has had a long middle, and now has a very clear definitive ending here, which again, James Bond has never had. Mm -hmm. And that is just so satisfying. And there's just... I felt very emotional watching this movie, because I knew these movies meant something to me, but it's pretty crazy to be sitting in a theater 15 years after Casino Royale, where I've had this version of the character around half my life, and they're doing, like, callbacks to the musical theme David Arnold wrote for Vesper Lind in 2006. And they're bringing closure to, like, this character and the things he's dealt with. And, like, they're treating Bond as a very complex, flawed person. Like, this movie opens with Bond doing something kind of unforgivably awful. And that is kind of what the movie's about in a certain sense. And I think it's really smart about it. Um, it's just a, just a terrific, terrific movie. Um, amazing music and sound design. Hans Zimmer does the music for this one, which I was a little worried about because Hans Zimmer, at this point, is kind of 50-50. He's either going to give it to an underling and have them like phone it in, or mm -hmm. he's going to actually be engaged. And when Hans Zimmer's engaged, there's nothing better. 
and he's very engaged here. He's having, like, I don't think anyone has ever had more fun with, like, the James Bond theme and interpolating little pieces of it throughout the score than Zimmer does here, but he also uses music from all of the Craig movies and even some of the old classic Bond movies, like the theme song from On Her Majesty's Secret Service, We Have All the Time in the World, uh, has a big role in this movie. Um, Does he use the song that everyone knows from Evangelion but really is from an old James Bond movie? No, he doesn't use that one. That, that would, would be, be fucking great, yeah. Just bum, 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 bum. bum. Everyone yeah. here's like, they're fucking stealing from Deontes Evangelion. And then one mega nerd stands up and says, well, actually, and, and that's how the movie goes. <laughs> it's from, it's from, from Russia with Love, the second yes. James Bond movie from 1963. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, that one would be 62. Anyway, um, yeah, it's just, it's a really damn good movie. Everyone I saw it with agreed. We had, like, maybe different degrees of what we liked and didn't like, but man, it works. It plays. It's 163 minutes long, and I think it uses its length really well. Like, it is, it feels shorter than the last couple of Bond movies, which have also set records for how long a Bond movie can be. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it just, like... It's one of those movies that uses the extra space to, like, give the actors room to work and things like that. You know, Daniel Craig was so bored, Inspector. I felt so bad for him. He's just like, please let me go use my silly southern accent somewhere. I don't want to do this. And in this movie, he is as good as he's ever been in the part. Um, and just, it's so, it's so satisfying as a James Bond fan, but particularly a Daniel Craig fan to watch them actually do an ending where you can like put these five movies on the shelf and go, that's the Craig era. It's got its own supporting cast. It's got its own plot. It's got its own beginning, middle, and end. They did it. It's not perfect. Spectre is still bad. Although No Time to Die makes me like Spectre slightly more because they make some lemons, lemonade out of those lemons. Um, but like it's a thing and it's done and it's not like this weird like partially finished project where they couldn't decide how serial they wanted to be and then it's mostly standalone and they're kind of up and down and then eventually the actor just leaves after a bad movie um it's so ridiculously satisfying uh and the movie is just such a far cut above most of what you're going to get from like a big hollywood blockbuster as bond movies usually are in terms of production value but yeah it's so good i'm so happy i like as a birthday present, getting a good ending to Daniel Craig's Bond was um, sublime. Yeah, that's that sounds very exciting because that is one of the things I've always had frustrations with with the Bond franchise. Which, like, I'm I'm just not like a huge spy movie guy in the first place, so like, it's not the genre I'd go to. And James Bond as a film franchise is so incredibly hit or miss um, that it it just has that quality of like you never know what the fuck you're getting when you sit down to watch a James Bond movie. Either it's going to be really entertaining or it's going to be like one of the worst movies you've ever watched. Um, this kind of <laughs> was my experience with the franchise. Um, and part of it is that, as you're saying, it's that kind of thing of it just kind of feels like they go with a certain kind of take on Bond until they just like run it into the ground and they fuck it up so bad that then they have to take a little break and then they get a new guy to come in and then they give it another shot. And it's just like a very slapdash way of trying to make a like film franchise um yes. i've just it's never appealed to me super strongly but i really like casino royale and skyfall a heck of a lot so it's it's good to know that they've not only have they made another really good movie with daniel craig as james bond but that you know they it feels like they took the story that they're trying to tell very seriously and not just 
making it a, okay, we're doing another James Bond movie, let's just do another James Bond movie kind of thing, which it kind of feels like that franchise has coasted on for 50 fucking years or whatever. Yeah, and I think the Craig era, they really have tried to branch out and make it more prestige, and that has soared when it's worked, and it's crashed and burned when it didn't in Spectre, but, like, this one really evens it out, and... You know, like, Sean, for you and anyone else who hasn't, like, seen all of them, definitely make sure you've seen all four Craig films because this is paying off on all of them. It brings back things from all four, um, and it's more satisfying if you know the whole run. But definitely, like, watch the four. The only bad one is Spectre. Quantum of Solace gets a bad rap. I think that movie is pretty good. It is imperfect. It was the one made during the writer's strike, so they went in right. with an in, they went in with an incomplete script and the only people on set allowed to work on the script were Daniel Craig and the director Mark Forster, neither of whom are writers. And so it's it's somewhat slapdash, but when Quantum of Solace is good, it's quite good. Craig is great in it. Um and I think it's got a really touching sort of main thrust to it. And then um and then Skyfall is great, Spectre is bad, but, like, if Spectre is bad, I can at least tell you now that, like, all the shitty stuff they do in Spectre, they kind of, like, make hay out of in No Time to Die. So there's, like, a light on the end of that tunnel where mm -hmm. I've been, like, sitting with Spectre for six years seething at it. You won't have to do that if you haven't seen it. You can watch Spectre and go, that was shitty, and then watch No Time to Die and go, you know what, they, they did okay with the shitty lemons they were handed. Yeah, because so. that is definitely one of the other things about if you end up watching a really bad James Bond movie is that historically there's just you don't get a like a reward for that but nothing no. nothing comes from that it's just you watched a shit movie um it's <laughs> yeah. so yes you're it's like if it's a series of movies and yeah this one's not very good but at least like you're getting you're filling in that piece of like the arc that they're going to pay off more in the next movie it definitely makes it more worthwhile to watch it's kind of like a little inflected by like the marvel movie logic i think of like you're not going to love every single one of them equally, but oftentimes things set up in a weaker movie can pay off in a big way in a, in a better movie later. Um, Bond kind of internalized that logic here, and I'm super fascinated to see where they go next because they're going to have to... Like, the way this ends, you can't just like have a recast and it's like the same character going forward. It's a very firm ending, and so... I there's like a bunch of stuff from this movie they could do spin-offs of. Anna de Armas, who was also with Daniel Craig in Knives Out, has like a 20-minute scene in uh, No Time to Die, and she should they should absolutely do a spin-off with that character. That would be fucking great. Um, but other than that, I'm like the next time they do Bond, they're gonna have to reinvent it pretty heavily, which is probably a good thing. That probably will push them to be creative. Um, so we'll see. Um, but but I'm glad this this movie's good. And uh, I just kind of breathe a sigh of relief because it's like, thank God, they, they, they did it. I don't yeah. have to be mad forever <laughs> about Spectre. Um, I'll talk about Metroid in a second, but but Sean, I've been talking for a while. What have you been up to? Uh, a couple of things. I've, I've finished uh, Lost Judgment. Uh, that game is fucking fantastic. Uh, I mean, you know, the last time I talked about it on the podcast last week, um, I had, I think I was in Chapter 4 or Chapter 5. Um, and I had spent most of my time just doing the side stuff. And and I so this last week, I've done basically everything one can do in the game without going 100% crazy, super completionist. Like, I need to get every single, like, eat every meal at every single store and get the high score in every arcade <laughs> game there. Like, I don't go that far with it. But I did all the side stories other than the secret boss. Because the secret bosses in, in Yakuza Studio games are 
complete horseshit. Not a way that I care about because they're very hard to even get to. Um, but they are they are very very hard type secret bosses. So I, I didn't beat that character. But other than that, I did all the like big content in the game. It is the first time in a while I have been like this completely just absorbed by a video game. Like basically every single moment of free time I've had um, over the past week that was not like. 20 minutes to just do the dailies in Genshin Impact has just been me playing Lost Judgment uh, because it is so incredibly absorbing a game. Um, I guess like like to add on to the stuff I talked about last week, um, I definitely feel having finished all the side stuff that this is the best all the side content has been in any of the studio's games, uh, which is saying, saying something because the studio's uh, side content is often like as good if not in some ways even better than some of the main stuff they do um and it's this franchise has a long history of these really great big long detailed side stories with like cool mini games that are really like addicting and it's that kind of thing of you play the mini game you're like god why don't they just make this thing its own video game because it's so good and they're often long enough stories and stuff associated with them that it could be something you could see be sold as like a 40 dollar product um, the school stories, which is sort of this like overall house that they've built to sort of put all their major minigame storyline things into, um, is the best side content they've ever done because it both has a wide range of different minigames that kind of recalls Yakuza 4 or Yakuza 5, the multiple protagonist games where each protagonist had a big minigame thing associated with them and their own story with it. So instead of it being, here's the one one for Kiryu in Yakuza 3 or Yakuza 6 or Yakuza 0, or Yakuza 0 had one for Kiryu and Majima, um, Yakuza 4 and Yakuza 5 had a slightly smaller scale one, but a different one for every one of the main characters. In Lost Judgment, you're only playing as Yagami, but I think they realized that the some of the other best side content in the franchises from Yakuza 4 and Yakuza 5 because they didn't feel the need to have to stretch every mini game out to the like length of the whole game each one could be like here's like it's like you know four or five hours of that stuff for each character rather than it being something that's like this is like a 15 hour long giant thing that for this main character that goes over the whole game and that amount of variety is super refreshing and it's really cool to see them kind of take that approach and bring it back um, and have a bunch of minigames that are super fun. In particular, the boxing minigame is super fun. It's that kind of thing of like you wish that boxing games were still a thing like they used to be because uh, like that Fight Night franchise from like the late Xbox, early Xbox 360 era had some really cool games. And this is reminiscent of that. It's, it's a very nice sort of like more like sort of complicated 3D punch out almost uh, is kind of what you can think of the boxing minigame um and then there's also a robot club minigame that is also really fun which is a cool kind of like territory puzzle game almost it's got like a little bit of like kind of tetrisy elements to it and a lot of customization as you build these robots and kind of have to collect tetris pieces on a 3d board and build out your territory from one corner of the space and try to take over the opponent's territory on the opposite corner by kind of building a path and then the opponents are also in real time getting their own pieces that they're kind of collecting and building their own path and so you have to sort of navigate through and sort of figure out what is the best way to sort of get to their territory and take it over and win the game both those mini games are some of the most fun i've had with the mini games um in this franchise but even more importantly than the fun of the individual mini games the school story stuff is so good because it has this big multi-layer story approach 
where each minigame has its own kind of cast of characters because it's all associated with different clubs at the school you're investigating. Um, so, like, the Robotics Club has its own cast of characters with its own drama, its own themes, and its own story that goes on over the course of your interactions with that club. Um, but all of those stories feed into one master story that is about you working with the Mystery Research Club at the school, which basically is a club run by one girl who is, like, this, like, high school girl Sherlock Holmes kind of character, Amasawa, <laughs> who is utterly phenomenal. Um, and... So you're as you're advancing each of those individual stories, they all feed into this one master story that then comes to this really great narrative conclusion where you're you're investigating a character called the Professor that is a clear of like nod to Professor Moriarty from the Sherlock Holmes books, um, and it's this like mysterious figure that's manipulating different high school kids in like leading them to like committing crimes or like a path of like delinquency for reasons that you don't know at first. Um, and so that's why you're investigating all these other clubs is because the professor is doing something um, that's kind of like manipulating them in some way. And you're sort of ingratiating yourself into the club as an advisor, figure out what's going on. And the way that that story wraps up and it ties into some of like the side stuff from the original game. So if you played all the side stuff of the original Judgment, it kind of brings like characters and plot threads from that back, which was really cool. And the overall resolution of that story, it's like a like two hour long whole side quest thing once you finish each of the individual clubs that has a bunch of like voice acting. It's very well produced and it's some of the most like you've seen, you can see the like main story production values leaking more into the side content. And it's super satisfying to see that um, because it's, it's part of the overall structure of Lost Judgment is the school story narrative while the main story can't touch on it directly because it is technically optional, it so much fleshes out like the themes and ideas of Lost Judgment, which is so much about um, like if you know anything about like high school stuff and like discussions about like American high schools, there's a concept called restorative justice, which is a different model of discipline from the traditional like detention, suspension, you know, that kind of stuff that we traditionally do because that shit doesn't work. Um, and restorative justice is like this very kind of community-based effort to identify why instances of bullying or misbehavior are happening and how do you resolve them. And it's more about like being open and communicating and creating a sense of like space and belonging in home for every member of the community. Um, and that's very much, while they don't use any of that direct terminology, which I wouldn't expect because it's a Japanese setting, it's very much that same kind of idea of like what Yagami does in each of those schools is introduce or into those clubs is kind of introduce a bit of like a restorative justice concept of him bringing out what are all of these sort of like hidden things that are hurting all these students and causing them to do things like against their own best interests and like hurting each other in different ways and sort of like creating a sense of like strong like happy like friendly community within each group and then within like the master group of all the clubs you've interacted with as a whole and that all comes together so nicely that it serves as a nice sort of like juxtaposition with the main story which is this more sort of you know that's where you have your seedy noir mystery thing you'd expect if you played the first game which is about like these series of murders that has been happening and it's someone who has been killing bullies who in the past had like adults who when they were in high school were bullies and they bullied someone that eventually committed suicide and those adults then are being killed and you're sort of like putting all these pieces together and there's a big conspiracy and all this stuff and it's really cool seeing the way that the game plays with those themes and really I think has this 
really powerful perspective on these issues that resonated with me a lot having worked in high school as a teacher that like it identifies how both like the the desire for that kind of like retributive justice and like revenge and those kinds of things and that like desire to like discipline and punish people but then also the need for finding like compassion even if sometimes it doesn't feel fully deserved and like thinking about the impact of empathy and compassion and the value of the truth and the value of honesty and openness with these really heavy themes and I love the way the game sort of takes all of that from this school setting um which is a great way to sort of take all of those ideas and like have a like closed off very kind of easy to identify bottled community for you to kind of look at those issues through and then by the time you get to the end of the game those ideas have exploded out into all those things are true of like society in general right like restorative justice mm. as a concept is not just a thing for discipline in schools it connects to the stuff we talked about on like our batman podcast with the general way that we treat crime in prisons and things like that is wrong and it makes the problem worse rather than making it better um it's just i think lost judgment is a phenomenal phenomenal game it's one of the best games that this team has made the the main story has i think some issues because it's the story it's telling is like i think quite a bit more complex than the studio honestly usually goes for like it still has its schlocky elements but the story is much smaller scale and much more restrained in most ways than the original judgment which is not how the studio usually moves in the other direction is like making things bigger and more spectacular and ultimately, the story of Lost Judgment's a lot more restrained and a lot more intimate. And I think they struggle with that if the pacing in some places because it's a slightly different register than the studio has historically gone for. But by the time you get to the end, the ending ending of this game like kind of floored me with how much I don't think I had even realized how effectively the game was working on me with its themes um and its ideas and like the kind of struggles that yagami was going through and then the antagonist character is one of the most fascinating antagonists um they've written and the like issues that that character is going through and like the resolution they come for is kind of this very like fragile but very precious kind of like ceasefire almost that it's this very like slightly uncomfortable resolution because nothing can be fully resolved um it's it's fantastic like I, I think that this game is this whole franchise is so so incredible and it's that thing of that as i'm playing these games i can never like fully believe that like the, they exist nobody makes games like this at all like no other studio does anything even close to what the yaksa studio games do and they just like fucking hit a home run every single time they come up at bat doing something that i've never seen another video game do and lost judgment is yet another one of those so this is this is another fucking like home run two thumbs up like for me a very like must play video game especially if you've played any other games from the studio um this this is some good shit so i spent your entire monologue there thinking about how i'm going to structure my time to play <laughs> judgment and lost judgment um but also sean did you want to comment at all on the announcements this week of the departures from ryuga gotoko studios Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So for people who don't know, there are two people left Nuga Gotoka Studio were the Yaxa Studios. Um, and this was something that like was basically known at the end of August um, that the, the biggest one is Nagashi, Toshiro Nagashi, who is the guy who's um, sort of like he's like the big name. Like he's a guy who's been at 
Sega. And Daisuke Sato, the other guy who left, has also been at Sega forever. I mean, uh, Nagashi is a guy who worked on, like, I think he worked on fucking Outrun. So he's from, like, the arcade days mm, for Sega. Yeah. And he worked on a lot of their, like, arcade racers and stuff. He was, like, one of, like, the pinch hitters that came in to kind of help close on Shinmu, which had a very, like, difficult development. Um, and so Nagashi has been at Sega for over 30 years. Um, he was like kind of like one of the founding fathers, basically, of the franchise, and he's been a major factor in the franchise since. Although, like, he is also this is not a like Hideo Kojima thing of like he's not like the game director on every Yakuza game. Most Yakuza games have a totally different game director. Uh, the studio has like a very wide and deep bench of incredible talent that they pull from, and they kind of move people to different roles a lot of the time. Um, and then Daisuke Sato, the other guy who left, again, also old school Sega guy, has been at the studio, Riga Gotoku Studio, since its founding, um, like, is, like, more of, like, a produce producerial role, um, but also has been a major factor. And, and so both of them have left, um, I think they both went to a company called NetEase. I know Nagashi did for sure. I, I was just assuming Daisuke Sato also went to the same place Nagashi is going, um, which NetEase is kind of building up some of its development in Japan to make console games. Um, so... I'm very curious to see what he's going to go um, do in the future. But I also want to say, like, I saw some kind of doom and gloom stuff from Yaksa fans on Twitter when this news broke out that, that I, like, understand why where that's coming from, but I also think is very misplaced because, like I said, this studio is not a, like, one-man show. No video game studio is, but this studio is very much... It's not even trying to. Like, Nagashi no. has never presented himself as being, like, an auteur figure. And I think feel like if you play these games, you can tell by playing them th that the Yakuza franchise and then its spinoff Judgment and uh, Lost Judgment, these are like huge team efforts. Like it, it's so much about like the this studio has like the most efficient, incredible teams. I think basically any video game studio in the world, they put out super high quality products um, basically once a year, um, and it's so they're so smart and efficient about their process and their games are always so fantastic um so i'm not really worried about the future of the franchise they did sort of like reconfirm that they're working on yakuza 8 which will continue to star ichiban kasuga from yakuza 7 um that that game i think they kind of said like we'd love to be able to show it within like the next year we should be able to show what we're working on with yakuza 8 so i'm i'm still like tremendously excited and have like the highest expectations and hopes yeah. for the studio going forward because it's while those two guys left and they are important, like the people that remain, which is a lot of people, are still like the guy who's the main writer for the whole franchise is now basically the studio head. So it's still like people who are like instrumental people who've been with the franchise for since before the studio existed as its own separate entity within Sega. Those people are still there working on the franchise. So I'm excited to see what Nagashi does, but him leaving doesn't make me worried about the future of the studio or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, we lean way too much on uh, tour theory and just general popular film discussion. We definitely don't want to be doing that in video games. Like, yeah. please knock that off. Like, it's, uh, you know, unless, like, it's there's, there's just so few figures. Like, you know, Hideo Kojima is the only one who can make a Hideo Kojima game, right? Mm -hmm. But there's lots of people at RGG Studio who can come together and make an RGG game because it's a studio effort, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Just... Yeah, I, I kind of assumed that was the case, but I'm glad you sort of described that, Sean. So. Yeah. Before we move on from Lost Judgment, one last thing I want to say, because I feel like last week on the podcast, 
I presented like a number of different things, like the school setting and the skateboarding that like immediately I saw your eyes light up, Jonathan. And so yeah. if I want to <laughs> twist the knife even further in the, like you All really right. have to play this game, you have no time to, um, <laughs> is like literally I think an hour after recording our last podcast, I stumbled on something that was like, oh, I wish I could have said this because this would have made Jonathan even more want to play this game. Uh, relatively early on in the game, you also get access to a uh, Shiba Inu dog named oh, Rompo. Oh, fucking goddamn it. Named Rompo after the like famous Japanese mystery novel writer. Um, and he and it's this little Shiba Inu that you can walk around with you and he uses his nose to help you sniff out crime. And it's fucking great. And you can summon him at any time when you're in the open world and you can just go take a walk with this adorable little Shiba Inu, oh. either in Yokohama or in Kamurocho. And it's the f- it is the fucking best. And he leads to the absolute best, hands down, like, you know, giant trophy platinum award for best EX action in this whole franchise goes to the one that you can do with your dog because it is it is the fucking best thing they've ever done in these games in terms of, like, goofy EX actions or heat moves. So there's another thing that makes me specifically say, Jonathan, you have to play this game. All right. So, okay. So I'm really... I'm thinking about this. I... How long would the first game take to play, assuming I don't go nuts and do everything? Uh, that's that's hard to say, just because, like, if you mainlined it, I think it would probably be in the range of, like, 20 to 30 hours if you, like, didn't yeah. do most of the side stuff. If you do all the side stuff, then it's, like, like Lost Judgment, I did everything. I think it ended up being, like, 55, 60 okay. hours, somewhere in that range. Um, so that's, that's, like, that's the thing about these games is they are very variable in length depending on what you're kind of trying to get from them right and and i don't know if i would want to play judgment and just mainline it but i'm thinking maybe i should uh, after i'm done with Mar- uh, metroid dread just dive into judgment and start moving so i can get to lost judgment maybe next month or something um god damn it there's the there's that demon slayer game coming out this week but maybe i maybe i will cancel my pre-order on that and focus on judgment and Maybe pick that up as a Black Friday game or something. Yeah, I'm planning on... I'll definitely play that Demon Slayer game, but I'm going to wait for it to be on sale because those okay. kind of yeah. CyberConnect 2 games go on sale pretty quick. And I'm, I I still need to play fucking like Near Resurrection and yeah. Five Strikers are both games I own that I bought on sale a bit ago and I just haven't like put any time into okay. it. So well, that's, then, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, then I guess my next one will be Judgment because I... I, I I could, I guess, just jump in and play Lost Judgment, as you said. But since I have Judgment and I know I would like it, I should just do both. Um, since I have it sitting Yeah, right if there. you're going to end up playing Judgment anyways, you might as well play that first and then play Lost right. Judgment. Yeah. Okay, fuck. But Shiba Inu. D- damn it, Sean. Yep. Damn you. Damn you, RGG Studio. Why are you so good to us? <laughs> Speaking of why are you so good to us, Metroid Dread. Uh, holy fuck, Sean. Metroid Dread is like, I feel like every time I pick up that game, I have died and gone to video game heaven, where they made games just for me, and Metroid Dread is one of them. Um, It is kind of a perfect Metroid game so far. It is... So if you don't know, Metroid Dread is the fifth mainline 2D entry in the Metroid series. So after original Metroid slash Zero Zero Mission, Metroid 2 slash Samus Returns on 3DS, that was its remake, Super Metroid, Metroid Fusion... It's been 20 years since Metroid Fusion. Uh, it will dwell well, 19. Next year will be 20 years. Um, we are old. And yep. uh, and Metroid Dread is a game that um, 
the the main Metroid producer, whose name I'm forgetting, I will look that up just now, um, has been basically trying to make off and on ever since Metroid Fusion. Like it's in like old Nintendo powers stories about Metroid Dread for Nintendo DS was the first attempt. And it just was never made. It never. They never felt like they had the technology for it. Uh, Yoshio Sakamoto is the main Metroid producer. He's the guy who produces all the Metroid games. And then 2017, um, they partnered with the Spanish developer Mercury Steam, who kind of got their start working on various Castlevania games, which is like this common lineage, obviously. Um, and they made the 3DS game Metroid Samus Returns, which is a reimagining of Metroid 2, the Game Boy game. And that game, like, I went back and replayed that last week on my 3DS, and that game is just also a dream come true. That game was so good. I That, that was a game I played to 100% completion twice in a row when it came out. That definitely got my game so nice I played it twice award that year. Mm-hmm. Um, and now Mercury Steam has been set loose on a fully original Metroid game, Dread, based on, you know, the concept that Sakamoto has had for 20 years now. Um set loose to make that on a home console no less this is the first home console 2d metroid game since super metroid like i mean that's a big deal that's a long time and it is insanely good it is like it really feels like it kind of fell out of a portal from this alternate dimension where they just kept making this kind of game for the last 30 years you know, mm-hmm. kind of like Sonic Mania did. You know how Sonic Mania felt like it fell out of yeah. that portal where maybe not 30 years, but Sonic Mania felt like at least like this was the Sega Saturn game we never got, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but this feels like the Nintendo Switch game that was made after a long line of like they've been doing these because it has a lot of the stuff that they came up with for uh, Samus Returns on the 3DS. But it is also just innovating, like, in every which way. It has so much new stuff. It has so many new powers and abilities and movement things. It is such a refined version of what they experimented with in Samus Returns. It is graphically one of the most impressive games on the Nintendo Switch. It is fucking gorgeous. It is that 2.5D style that kind of, like, I I always think of, like, new Super Mario Bros. kicked off where you have fully 3d mod everything is 3d you're just looking at a like side scrolling 2d perspective the way samus returns did that with the 3d on the 3ds was breathtaking because mercury steam built these like really rich backgrounds that just extended back so far they do that again with dread but of course now they're on the switch they have much more horsepower to work with than they did on the 3ds and so the environments are just so detailed mercury steam is so good at the basics of environmental storytelling which i think is so important to metroid of how much of the story just exists in the atmosphere in the things you're looking at in the areas you're running through metroid dread gives you all of that better than any other 2d metroid game it is so incredibly good at that it's running at a solid 60 fps um it's very sharp it's resolution i think docked is only 900p according to digital foundry but it doesn't matter with a game like this like it is that is plenty high for because of the because everything is small because of it's Mm -hmm. this like 2.5d thing so like this game isn't using anti-aliasing none of the nintendo games do but in this game you don't notice that because everything is off in the distance so it just looks incredibly sharp it runs at that really fluid 60 fps which the 3ds game was not able to do um and then it plays like an absolute dream come true like samus's movement in this game is insane like everything you can do with that character and i'm i don't know how far into the game i am i'm having a hard time getting a sense of like how big this game is because it is 
like immediately one of the things you notice is that just the environments are way bigger than in any other metroid game like it is because you're on a home console and you have like a huge tv or at the very least on your handheld you know a big widescreen display um they've just built much bigger environments than in any other metroid game like there's a proper sense that you are a rat in a maze in this game and just like you are constantly going through areas where you have like eight directions to go and the game is very good at subtly guiding you in the way it wants you to go but you're constantly having to like go okay can't go there can't go there i have these three directions i'm gonna go this way and it's just massive and like the map system is very good and it has to be because the areas you're exploring are so big so i'm having a hard time figuring out like how deep into the game i am um i think on my play clock it's maybe two or three hours but that is the way Metroid play clocks work, that doesn't include like times you've died and times right. and menu screens and all of that. So that's less than my actual... I've probably put four or five hours into it. Um, and anyway, but like from where I am, all the abilities I have, like Samus has all these new movement abilities. There's this like dash that you get a couple hours into the game that basically allows you to like teleport across the screen. It's super cool. The way they've rethought the speed boost mechanic, which has been there since Super Metroid... Um, is so much cooler than anything that mechanic has ever done. Like, I like the speed boost, but I've it's always been a little finicky. And the stuff they do with it here, like, is kind of jaw-dropping. There's such cool stuff they've come up with for it. Um, and then all of the combat, you have the free aim thing that they did in Samus Returns, which is the best thing that game innovated. Like, free aim in the 2D Metroid is just perfect. I love it. Um, you know, there's this full 360-degree range of motion when you hold down the, the left bumper. Um, and then you've got that, you've got your missiles, you've got all the classic stuff, but then on top of that, there was this melee counter thing in Samus Returns that I liked, but it got a little repetitive because there wasn't much variety to it. It was mostly, you would wait for an enemy to attack you, when you saw the, like, counter thing, you would hit the counter and Samus would hit it away and then you would fire at it. They've retained that, but made it more complicated, and the enemy variety is, like, exponentially higher than it was in the 3DS game. And then on top of that, you can also do dash melees where you're just running around and you can just hit enemies and do actual damage to them with your melee. So the game is really built around like movement and speed and being able to get around and not have to like constantly stop to like fight things. It's really good in that way. It's really fluid. They've added a mechanic that's kind of like the, the new Doom games where you get more out of enemies if you do the melee counters on them in terms of, mm. like, the stuff they drop, which is super smart. There's all of that kind of stuff. There was the... In Samus Returns, they had all of these special abilities you had that were tied to this Aeon energy meter, which was, like, an extra energy meter that was the, the yellow energy you would get. And that had some cool stuff in Samus Returns. They've rethought that here, and that is tied to all of the stealth mechanics you can do around the big Emmy robots that are stalking you. And the Aeon meter has stuff like Samus now has a invisibility cloak sort of thing where she can turn invisible, but it'll eat up the Aeon energy. And then if you're not using the Aeon energy, it automatically recharges by like just moving around the map. But it means you have to be very judicious about using these certain things that that and the dash are both on the Aeon meter and they're stuff that help you get around sort of the big Emmy enemies uh, and some of the other stuff in the game it helps you with. It's just super cool. So it just plays beautifully the environments are so cool this is proper like super metroid style it's a big maze it's a big puzzle it's not linear there's definitely like a path the game guides you through um but it's not like do this whole area and then move on 
do this next whole area if you want to backtrack and get a couple of goodies you can it's you're constantly moving between the areas i think i've unlocked four areas i'm not sure how many there's going to be in the whole game but you're moving between all four at the point i'm in like very fluidly um a la super metroid and most metroids don't really do that like metroid fusion had the six areas that i guess you do move between a lot but it's always guiding you metroid fusion like literally has mission like waypoints of telling you where to go every time samus returns i thought squared the circle pretty well in that it had like discrete areas that you moved down through the planet but it was and then each of those areas was a big explorable mystery box but they were all sort of discrete this one is much more like classic super metroid or dark souls if you want to think of like a modern equivalent metroid prime obviously um and it's it's just incredibly good at that it is not handholdy in the way some um like metroid fusion or a lot of like metroidvanias can be um mm -hmm. when they kind of like lose faith in their own structure um it's a properly difficult game like it is if people have asked me on twitter if this would be a good first metroid game to play and I'm not sure, and I think the thing that would hold me back is that, like, the difficulty of the game does definitely, like, ask you to, like, lean on some of your muscles developed in other Metroid games. If you've played other Metroidvanias, you're probably fine. But it is definitely, if you've never played a game like this, I don't know if I would start with this one because it's demanding. Um, and the combat is demanding, too, in really fun ways. The big, like, marquee feature of this game is the whole thing with the Emmy robots, which are these EMMI robots, which are these big, like, uh, basically indestructible robots that are on the planet, and they are hunting Samus down, and they are there are discrete areas in every part of the map where the Emmy robots patrol, and there are these big, like, extra maze-like maze areas that you have to get through, and whenever you're in them, the Emmy is stalking you, and you get various sort of stealth and movement abilities to try to get around them because if they get you you will die there's a counter you can try to do on an emmy robot but it is really really hard to pull off i've done it two or three times um mostly you will just die and so it is very demanding it's like very atmospheric and scary and tense um it it kind of someone made this comparison on twitter the other day and i kind of agree i think it's a better version of what like breath of the wild did with the guardians because the Guardians in Breath of the Wild, they're really tough. You can't just kill them with, like, what you have at the beginning of that game. But you can also, like, just kind of run around them pretty easily and ignore them. Um, and and then once also when you figure it out and you figure right. out the timing on the deflect, then they're kind of like, whatever, and you can just kill yes. them very easily. Yeah. The Emmys, it's stressful because you're always going through these areas and you have to navigate and figure out where you're going. But you have to make a path where the Emmy isn't going to kill you. And you cannot, you just cannot, you do not have the tools to kill it until you get to a certain point in each of the different maps where you unlock a thing, uh, the Omega Energy, that allows you to then fight the Emmy robots, and then it starts like an actual boss sequence that is really fun and tense in its own way too. And it's always very rewarding because this thing has been stalking you for so long, and then it's like, all right, motherfucker, time to die. Um, and it's really great. So nice. like, it is just super smart. The game is so gorgeous. I love the art direction. It's it's like colder and more mechanical than some other Metroid games, but I think it works really well, and it does have quite a bit of environmental variety. It's just super cool. The music is <clears throat> very like atmospheric in the way I think like proper Kenji Yamamoto Metroid music usually is. Um, and so if you haven't heard a bunch of other Metroid soundtracks, you might not be 
like immediately taken by it but like this is a game to play with all the lights off nice pair of headphones on for me like big tv and just like immerse yourself in it because the music and the, the sound design is some of the best i've ever heard in a nintendo game it's like full immersion sound design the visuals are so good it's so tense it's so engaging as like a mystery to pick apart going through all these environments um if you have any affinity for this kind of game whatsoever this is about as well done as i've ever seen it certainly in the like 2d space um mm -hmm. And, like, as a longtime Metroid fan, so fucking cool to see it done, like, with all the modern bells and whistles, just as, like, this is a new Metroid game for a home console. Perfect. It's, I can't, I kind of, I can't believe it exists. There's, the more I play it, the yeah. more I'm, like, I can't believe that, like, Nintendo found the perfect people to make this. Mercury Steam, so good at it. And gave them room to just fly and just do their thing. Perfect. Love it. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things where for a long time it just kind of felt like Nintendo was never going to do another 2D Metroid. Because, as yeah. I said, it's been almost 20 years since the last one. Um, and, and we have had a lot of indie Metroidvanias in the time since... I mean, we, we've had, like, the Vania part of it, basically. Like, you know, it right. became its own thing. Um, I mean, obviously, Seventh of the Night came out before Petrofusion and stuff, but it's still like that genre sort of went off and became its own thing in many ways. And it's cool that not only is Nintendo coming back, but like they're doing it in a big way with this. Like, I hope that this sells well, because it's like yeah. always been the thing with Metroid that you hear is like, you know, it's got a very hardcore cult fan base. But And it's not that Metroid sells poorly on the scale of, like, normal video games, but compared to the main Nintendo franchises, like Zelda and Mario, it never sells on that kind of scale, which is why Nintendo seems to have never, like, committed to it as fully um, as those. And I, I hope that the Switch kind of bump works on Metroid uh, here also, because it would be cool if this became more of a staple for Nintendo to keep on making Metroid games and have this be, like, a more, like rich and like invested franchise than it's been for a while yeah it really would be and i think i would not be surprised if it gets that switch bump because also one of the nice things i've noticed is like nintendo's properly marketed this game they have not mm -hmm. like been slack on it like there has been a ton of advertising for metroid dread and like they have given it the full court press and that is very cool um and you know the, the thing that separates Metroid from all the imitators from... And there are so many great indie Metroidvanias and all the Castlevania games and all of that kind of stuff. The thing that separates them is Metroid has Samus. <laughs> and uh -huh. Samus is the biggest badass in the history of the fucking medium. And like Metroid Dread knows that. And one of my favorite things is Dread leans the fuck into it. Like even if you're not going to play this game... Go watch some of the cutscenes. I posted yeah. one on Twitter the other day. Like, oh my god. They lean into, like, Samus is the most unflappable, competent, capable badass in video game history. No one else holds a candle to her. Yeah, because I, I watched a bit of a stream of some of the early stuff of this game because I was curious to see it. Uh, and yes, that was one thing I came away from was like, yeah, no, they definitely like... They're, they're doing well, they're doing right by that character um, by making her incredibly badass. And and the the way that she's sort of characterized and they use her in the cutscene that I saw was like, yep, this is perfect. Like, this is yep. this is kind of how I've always, like, wanted the character to be treated and, like, it doesn't feel like she's always quite been 
actually used that way in the games all the time. Um, and, it, and it feels like it's the way that everybody thinks of Samus and wants to think of Samus. Um, especially for me as a character that I originally mostly knew from fucking Smash Brothers. Because that was right. how I was introduced to the character before I'd ever played a Metroid game. And I always thought like, fucking this character is so cool. Who the fuck is this thing? Um, and getting to see that sort of realized in these nice modern cutscenes is very awesome. Mercury Steam definitely has that same like understanding of the character i think retro did on the prime trilogy mm -hmm. and i really love that because you know the master chief he's very competent he's very cool he's not samus you know the master chief has has emotions that get in the way samus nothing fucking stops her she gets all of her powers taken away from her every single fucking time she starts a game and it does not stop her one inch she's great i love samus <laughs> Samus probably should figure that shit out though at some point. Be like very careful at the beginning of every single mission. Just make sure everything's very secure. I'm not going to lose anything this time. I'm not going to somehow forget how to roll up into a little ball. Like I just got to make sure that this shit is is like somehow every single time I pack all my missiles and somehow I lose them every single time. It's crazy. Yep. Oh, one little detail that I love about Metroid Dread in this this game definitely like is surprising as a metroid fan and how it doles stuff out one of those i did not get the morph ball until my save file had over two hours on it that is because that's usually the very first thing you get mm -hmm. and they do some different tricky fun stuff with it it's so cool so cool i don't want to spoil anything more metroid dread i i would be very shocked if this is not my game of the year i'm just i'll put that out there right now yeah i would i would feel like a little like ungrateful frankly if it wasn't Nintendo right. right. would just be like, we we made it for him, and we put it on his fucking birthday, and he made it, like, number three? Fuck this asshole. <laughs> Burn it. Cancel Metro Prime 4. We're moving on. Yep. All right. Well, let's move on, Sean, here, and uh, talk about something that's also very good. Um, that also starts with an M and has yes. a T and an R in it. <laughs> you know, really, there's the same thing. We don't yep. even need to talk about them. No. All right. The Matrix. 1999. The Wachowski Siblings. Such a good movie. Uh, yeah. There are so many ways to start with The Matrix. It is obviously has left like a cultural imprint that is like outsized to a huge degree. Um, there was the one thing that I think is nice about watching The Matrix now is that we're past the moment where every movie was doing its Matrix parodies. So uh -huh. you can just go back to enjoying it. Um, but, like, this is definitely one of the movies we have covered on this podcast that has one of the biggest cultural footprints. And yet, it is also one of those you go back to, and it is better than all of its imitators. It is not diminished in the slightest from being a little, like, oversaturated in pop culture. It is just a full-throated, straight masterpiece. I said this on Twitter after I watched it last night. I think The Matrix is at, or at the very least, very, very near the upper like threshold of how good it is possible for Hollywood studio filmmaking to be like alongside Mad Max Fury Road, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Fellowship of the Ring, name your great like at the threshold movie, The Matrix is there with those to me. Yes. Yeah, it's it's a movie that like you just kind of can't believe exists when you're watching yeah. it um even now. And and I agree with you that that now is a good time to go back to The Matrix because there was a period of time I feel like in the mid to late 2000s where like 
the cultural influence of the Matrix was so saturated in popular media that it kind of felt a bit obnoxious. Um, it, like it was because the Matrix both like sort of like was like a defining moment of culture and then defined so much of like American pop culture afterwards. It was that thing that, that it was kind of indes- inescapable and it kind of got almost frustrating in that way. Um, that I think like going back to it now that it's you're fully removed from it. You don't have to worry about watching some like bad B-rate comedy movie that's going to have a bunch of Matrix references in it and shit like that. You know, not every single video game trailer has the like the Matrix-esque like um, lobby shootout kind of music. That's not a thing. That's every (laughs) single video game trailer ever, which was the case from like 2000 to 2006. Um, like that's why the Mad World uh, Gears of War trailer was like such a big deal because it's like oh you don't have to have like electronic grumbling music with like a really high tempo drum beat for the tra- trailer music for everything anymore um, like that kind of stuff being so removed from it you look back at it now and it's like it feels like it's fresh again because you're kind of outside of like the immensity of its cultural wake yes absolutely you know this is this is definitely a movie that signals, I think, to a lot of people the beginning of kind of the digital era of cinema. Mm-hmm. Even though it's, you know, it's shot on film. It's actually a very filmic shot on film movie, especially when you watch it with like the nice 4K now. It's a very grainy 35 millimeter movie. But obviously it is using digital effects and it is about a digital world. So like it is catnip, I will say, to academics. Like The Matrix is definitely a movie people love to like. That's where digital cinema begins, and we're going to talk about it in all of these things, and often in, like, the hyper-literal way that I find discussions about The Matrix very annoying, where it's, like, they want to talk about, like, the computerization of life, and, like, what if we are in a simulation, and what does that mean, and I, that's not what the movie's about. Yeah. It's not what the movie's about. Like, it's one of the things that annoys me, and I actually think one of the coolest things about The Matrix as a movie is that over time, the further we've gotten away from its moment of, like, birth... I think it's become a richer text because mm-hmm. there's stuff like, like, I think you always could have seen like the Marxist reading of the matrix because it's a very obvious reading, but I don't think a lot of people did it at the time. Um, I think a lot of people focused on like the digital side of it, the, like the way it is sort of a pastiche of um, all of these like different sort of East Asian influences in terms of Hong Kong cinema and anime and all of that, which that is an interesting side of it. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, one of the many readings that has that was not really in vogue when it came out, but is very obvious now, is it as a trans narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, because this is the most, like, notable big Hollywood big-budget movie made by two trans people. Um, didn't know that at the time, but they, you know, both of the Wachowskis have come out of, as trans women uh, and transitioned since this came out. Um, and it is a, like, very clear reading in the movie, I think, when you watch it now. And I think a really rich text on that vein but, you know, I think the thing that animates The Matrix is it is an incredibly smart movie with a very potent multivalent metaphor at the heart of it that can be read in a lot of interesting philosophical ways. And philosophy is, like, clearly where the movie's heart is, I think, more than the technological side. Yeah. Um, and you take that, you add on just phenomenal character writing and world building a wickedly good sense of like movie structure and three act structure um and then just incredible like burn the house down great direction from two directors who had made one other feature film before this movie bound that's it this was their first like big budget movie um 
and it is just kind of this perfect killer combination. Yeah, I think it's like one of the best examples I've seen of of a piece of art that like very much wears its insp- inspirations and influences on its sleeve. Like it's not, you know, you don't have to dig very far to identify, oh, this is like influenced by Ghost in the Shell and John Woo movies and Wuxia films and like yeah. so on and so forth. And there's a lot of like Hollywood Star Warsy hero's journey stuff that's a big part of like the way the plot is structured and stuff like that like th- it's very easy to see all those influences but the thing that makes the matrix so good is that it takes all those influences is not embarrassed by any of them but it makes something totally like unique and singular out of them because the like style in the action and the direction in the writing in the movie is never just it's just a Wuxia movie or a Wuxia knockoff or it's just a John Woo knockoff or it's just a Star Wars The Hero's Journey knockoff or a Ghost of the Shell anime knockoff. It's never any of those things. Like the thing it comes out with always is something that feels very singular and unique to the Matrix. And even with like all the imitators afterwards, it still is unique and singular. Like it's still, there's nothing really quite like this movie, um, which makes it so much fun to go back to and kind of appreciate. To the degree that like, this is the most 1999 movie ever made in so many ways, you mm-hmm. know, with all of the leather and the sunglasses and Rage Against the Machine on the soundtrack and all of these sorts of things. And yet it is also timeless. This is not a movie you like look at now and like laugh at go. This is so 90s. It's like rooted in a moment, but it is also like ludicrously prescient in what I think it is like looking forward to like what the world will become. Um, it is a movie that honestly feels more of the moment now than like thematically than I think it probably did in 1999, like in so many different ways. Um, it's just, it's one of those movies that when I was watching it with sort of this critical eye for the podcast where I have like notes out and I'm taking notes, I'm just constantly noting lines that like, boy, that hits hard in this context and that hits hard in this context. And just, it is, it is a text that is now 22 years old and feels richer than ever. Um, and you just, you would not expect something that was this much of a pop cultural moment to quite have that particular brand of staying power. You know what I mean? Yes, I, I, I 100% because it is something where it, it feels like its meaning is richer and more clear now than, than when it came out. And I think almost like at the time, you know, there because there's a certain amount of the like kind of like 1990s American political apathy stuff that I feel like is like in the like orbit of this movie that I feel like when the movie came out, I feel like that sort of like the general just sort of like Ugh, of the Ameri- America's attitude towards politics in the 90s sort of made the movies kind of unreadable in some ways that like like it made like at the time you say a lot of the critical reception was focused so much on either just like a very pop philosophy like let's do this very sort of like poppy american slightly orientalisty feeling take on like buddhism or zen meditation like reading of the matrix or it was someone going just like super hard into and what if we're in a computer man and looking at it that way when that's just like feels like a very boring way to look at the movie like it's not to say that that you can't look at it that way like the movie is receptive to those readings also but it feels like you're just kind of like poking at the surface of it rather than really getting into it when that's like the the lens you're taking to it yeah i mean this is a deeply political film it is a leftist revolutionary text Mm -hmm. in all sorts of ways um and yeah it is 
it very much you can see why it comes out of the moment it does and also why I don't think it was appreciated in that way at the time it was appreciated I'm not saying like this is a movie that wasn't loved in its moment obviously it was it's just I I remember as a kid like you know this was a big movie that came out I don't think I saw it I didn't see this in theaters I saw it on DVD because we would have been seven when this movie came out in the movie theater so no I saw it on DVD around the time Reloaded came out um, but, you know, I remember hearing about The Matrix so much and I've gone back and looked at, you know, criticism from the time. And I, I certainly remember the moment when the sequels came out and, you know, we'll dive into the sequels. And, and I think those are vastly underrated texts. I think those are great movies and and really, really interesting. And I think part of why part of why they were, I think, dismissed and misunderstood at the time is sort of similar to why the Star Wars prequels were. It's that like we're just not even attempting sort of a political ideological thematic reading of this thing. So if you're not doing any of that and all you're left with is like, does it do like the like big three act, like hero's journey storytelling well enough for me? And I'm like, well, actually it's a subversion of it. So that's why it's like misunderstood. Um, and I think you can see the seeds of that in some of the like particular forms of reception to the matrix at the time. Um, and how much it was sort of strip mined for these aesthetic parts when those aesthetic parts are, as you say, Sean, like part of this unified whole that really has to be grappled with as a, as a mixture, as like a blend of things, because it's all there for a reason. Yeah, absolutely. So, cause I, and, and I want to kind of dig into a little bit of the like, because I feel like this is how we sort of have usually started these of like, what yeah. was our connection to the Matrix back when it came out because this is the because this would have been what this is 1999 which is that's the same year Phantom Menace came out right yes so yes so so this was an R-rated film I think this might be the first R-rated movie I ever watched um because I definitely watched it when I was quite young um maybe when I was like nine or ten I definitely had seen it a year or two before I saw The Matrix Reloaded I saw The Matrix Reloaded and Revolutions in the theater um, like yeah, I, I did too. Which we'll talk about that with Matrix Reloaded. It's like that's sort of an awkward movie to watch in the movie theater when you're 11 years old next to your parent. Uh, the, you know, there's a certain scene in that movie that I yeah. very remember very distinctly, a formative moment. Um, I but, mean, you're going to be surprised when you watch it now because I don't think any of these three movies would get an R today. I there's just no way. Yeah, there's, these are the tamest R movies. By modern standards, I mean, you could The Matrix, have. I feel like, and this is why I think my parents let me watch these. My parents were never particularly strict about that kind of thing. And I think they both do this. Like, the reason why The Matrix is rated R is, like, mostly, like, language. Because there's just a bunch of F-bombs yeah. in it. Um, but, like, it has some violence. It's got, like, some light, like, sort of body horror stuff with, like, the naval robot probe right. thingy. Um, in that scene, uh, but generally speaking, it's, it's a very tame movie. So it's like not something I think is like an inappropriate film for like a nine-year-old to see necessarily. But obviously, when I watched it when I was nine years old, my main takeaway was that was that was fucking rad. Like that's right, right. It was like he dodged the bullets and he has a cool sunglasses on, and Morpheus has these weird little sunglasses that don't have anything that go over your ears, which just seems impractical, but it makes it even cooler. Um, <laughs> and like, it, you know, it's like all the kung fu and that kind of stuff. Um, and by the time I would have watched it also, that would have been like after one of the things that Matrix helped motivate, I think, was like the mainstreaming of anime in American culture. Because, yes. I mean, they advertised the movie partially off of its influences from like stuff like Akira and Ghost in the Shell, um, which were already cult hits over here. So, like, I was already ingrained in the world of Dragon Ball and stuff like that by the time I had seen The Matrix for the first time. So it very much, I think, when I was a kid, it just kind of went into that 
part of my brain. Um, and then, you know, I continued to, and then I saw the sequels in the theater. I think I'd seen the sequels again at DVDs, um, later, but I have not gone back to these movies in a long time. And the last time I've seen any of them was I watched the original Matrix back, I probably like 2012 or 2013 ish, I think was the last time I watched this movie. Um, and it's been a long, long time. I think I, not until like, since I was like 14 or 15, maybe since I've seen either of the sequels. Um, so it's a thing that I really enjoyed The Matrix a lot as a kid. I played Into the Matrix. I played Path of Neo. I have the 100% save on my Xbox to prove that one. <laughs> um, and, and I watched the Animatrix, and it's like I really liked this franchise a lot. But because after The Matrix Online shut down, and ignoring the fact that there obviously a new movie is coming out soon, like the franchise was just like dead forever. Like it's been dead since like 2006. And it's one of the things that makes it interesting to go back to is that it is such a rich piece of world building and fiction um, that there's so much like there in the Matrix, but like there hasn't been this like big booming like multimedia franchise around it. It was like this huge spark in like the first half of the decade of the 2000s. And then it's been dead since then. And it's it's like interesting to go back and kind of, I had, I think, a much more nostalgic response to watching this movie than I have on any of the other ones we've done because it's not a movie I've gone back to or like honestly thought directly about much in like 10 years because like I feel like pop culture has not prompted me to think about it much in a long time. And it made it a very fun thing to go back to. Yeah, I see what you mean there because, you know, one of the things I think the Wachowskis have been really smart about is like managing their relationship with Warner Brothers such that Warner Brothers has not completely hoard out their life's work in the yeah. way that like I think any other IP that was as big as The Matrix was and I think people younger than us might not understand how big The Matrix was The Matrix yeah. and its sequels were fucking big and like that moment like it was as you say 1999 to like 2006 less than a decade but that was like a big bang of like Matrix stuff it was a big moment um and then just a lot of like there just hasn't been a lot and part of that i know from just hearing reporting is that the wachowskis have been very good about like constantly teasing warner brothers about maybe we'll do more such that warner brothers has not gone out and had someone else do it and then finally like matrix resurrections exists in part because warner brothers was finally ready to have someone else do it and probably ruin it and lana wachowski was like okay, I'm not letting them do that. I'm going to make a Matrix movie and it's time to maybe do something new with it. Um, which has been, I think, a very smart way of managing it. And they were involved with all the pieces of it. The Animatrix yes. and the video games and all of this stuff. They really managed all of that and were... And this is another way... Like, again, The Matrix is, I will say, as someone in film studies, getting my PhD, probably the American movie of the last 25 years that gets brought up the most in various texts. Like... It is the thing that, like, it exists at in all the texts on digital cinema, everything on new media, everything about, like, media convergence. The Matrix is always, like, example number one. And part of that is because the Wachowskis were sort of the first major auteurs to come out and, like, embrace a media convergence narrative about their work in that The Matrix was a movie 
And then when they started expanding it after the success of that first movie, and it became this Animatrix thing, which is like not quite a movie, not quite a TV show, and like it's it's like a East meets West sort of thing. Um, and you have these sequels, but the sequels also play into these video games that the Wachowskis also wrote and like co-directed. And so you have all of this stuff that they were like very involved in like pushing a like media convergence sort of thing. And so the Matrix is sort of seen as uh, the birth of a lot of this these ideas. Like honestly, I am 100% confident someone will write an article about the significance of Matrix Resurrections being on theaters and on HBO Max day one because like that is seems almost inevitable from like where the Matrix started and how it like kind of asks you to like participate in all these different forms of media with it. Because um, they also did a lot of stuff with like websites and online things back in the day that like no one does that now with films. They maybe on social media, but Sean, yeah. I'm sure you I remember mean, the, all the fun websites for movies back then. Yes, yeah, back when everything had its own website because you know social media didn't exist, and so that's how the internet had to be. But it's also, I mean, like with that, you have like the Matrix Online was an ongoing story that was a sequel to the movies. Um, right. Where, like, major plot things like the death of Morpheus happens in The Matrix Online. And, like, The Matrix Online was a weird, crazy, experimental thing. Also, um, that obviously, we're never, we can't, you can't play anymore. So we're no. not going to be able to, like, revisit it directly. And I didn't play it at the time. But it had shit like you, like, the, like, sort of GMs or, like, administrators, basically, of the game could load into the game as agents and, like, go around. And they had, like, scripts and things like that. And they played characters uh, of of like the agents in the world of the Matrix Online, and and yes, so it very much like the Matrix franchise in that period of nineteen ninety nine to two thousand six, two thousand seven or so was like super experimental. Of uh, like Enter the Matrix, when we get to do that, Enter the Matrix has like what is like forty something minutes of like film footage directed by the Wachowskis while they were filming Reloaded and in Re in, uh, Revolutions. That's like has actors like it's live action footage. If you're watching it, if you're playing it on the original Xbox, you're looking at like, you know, widescreen footage that's then cropped like four by three because it's also a four by three video game. So you're looking at this weird little rectangle in the middle of your screen um, and, and shit like that. But it was like the Matrix was part of like a huge multimedia thing that at the time, I think everyone thought that was the direction that. Like that, the approach that the Matrix movie was doing would be the direction everything moved in. We do live in a very multimedia world, but it's not like that. Like, like, like the Matrix sort of was a more, I think, ideal version of that multimedia concept than what I think has actually become sort of like popularized through mobile games and like, like modern ARGs and stuff like that, which is more what multimedia has become. It is, and it isn't. Like, I, I do think there's something it like anticipates about like Marvel's Disney Plus approach now. Mm -hmm. Of, like, just asking you to, like, now go on, like, multiple forms of media and, like, watch all these different things to follow the story. Like, in a much, much more systematic way than The Matrix ever did. Because one of the things that is always, like, I think overblown in articles about this is, like, you had to watch Enter the Matrix to understand this thing in Matrix Reloaded. And that's not true. The, no, the Matrix yeah. movies are a perfectly self-contained entity. It's all sort of bonus stuff in those games. Um, but, like sort of that that impulse i do think is something that pays off later and people sort of wind up making hay out of so this is all slightly off topic but it's like an interesting you know this is one of the things that this sort of cultural moment brings to bear one other thing i wanted to, to say sean about the actual release of the first matrix 
I think something that's really important to remember is that when this movie came out in theaters, no one knew what it was about. Right. Warner Brothers was like we've talked about before that Warner Brothers is sort of like this habitually mismanaged studio that makes like crap and absolute fucking genius next to each other in a very weird way. Like they can be doing whatever the fuck they were doing with DC in the mid 2010s and then also put out Mad Max Fury Road, right? Yeah. And I feel like The Matrix is a good example of this because they just gave these sort of new directors, you know, this this movie didn't cost a ton. It was $63 million, fairly big for the time, but not crazy. Um, gave them all this money to make what had to what has to be one of the wildest scripts in Hollywood history. Like one of uh-huh. the least obviously commercial things anyone has ever funded. And then the way they sold it was all on that question of what is the Matrix. And so the tr- if you go back and watch the trailers for the original Matrix, they're a real trip because it does not tell you what the story is. It's just all of this kind of cool footage from the movie because the movie has ample amounts of cool footage to pull from built around this mystery of like, what does the title of this movie mean? You know, the tagline was the Matrix has you. And I don't think, and, and and at the time, you can go back and look, no one expected this to be like a giant hit. It came out, Sean, six weeks before The Phantom Menace. The Phantom Menace was the big, like, marquee film of 1999. That was the movie 16 years in the making. That was, I very vividly remember the hype of The Phantom Menace. I'm sure you do too, Sean. Yes. Like, I have, I have never seen a movie more hyped than The Phantom Menace. I, mm-hmm. I feel confident saying that. I don't think a movie will ever be that hyped again. Um, in part because it backfired on The Phantom Menace a little bit. Um, Not financially. That movie did make a shit ton of money. But The Matrix kind of flies in under the radar. It's R-rated, which is never a recipe in Hollywood for, like, big blockbuster. These, I mean, sometimes now. But uh, certainly at the time would not have been. Comes out end of March 1999. And it's just this, like, like, it does well right off the bat. But it is this slow burn, word of mouth, stay in theaters forever. It made about half a billion dollars. Globally in 1999, which would be huge, huge, huge for the time, um, and just sort of rewrote pop culture, and you know, in that year, left a bigger imprint than like the Phantom Menace did, which was kind of a dud for people at the time, um, whatever art defensive it is now. Um, and so, like that is also, I think, one of the fascinating legacies is like studios don't make movies like The Matrix anymore. No studio puts that kind of money and time behind something that is a mystery. They make stuff that they have very clear data will do well. Or like if it will bomb, you understood kind of why they made it, that kind of thing. The like, we're just gonna take a giant $63 million risk. I just, it's just not a thing. It's just not yeah. a thing. The Matrix would never, ever, ever, ever be made today. Yeah, because it, it's also like spending that kind of money on what is this big kind of genre movie swing. You know, it's it's because it's not... You know, it's not a, like, crime thriller or a horror movie or one of those, like, sort of, like, comfortable genres that, that Hollywood is fine putting, like, some amount of money into to produce, like, what it, like an original IP that's, like, nobody, no one has an attachment to it. It's just, like, a new movie. Um, but for, like, this big kind of, like, sci-fi, cyberpunky action movie thing, like, like this big, I mean, it's basically a fantasy movie. Um that is a brand new IP. Like just nobody fucking does that. Um, everything has to be some sort of pre-existing IP driven thing. If it's going to be in this very sort of fantastical setting. Um, that's one of the things that's so fun about the matrix is like 
this is its own whole world. Like it has that kind of world building quality to it that you get from a Star Wars or a Lord of the Rings that you don't get a like in Hollywood like at all. It's one of the things that feels like one of its biggest influences from anime, honestly, is it's like world building approach and it's like commitment to just being this is like some this crazy world and people basically just have like superpowers and it's this computer shit and whatever. Um, and it, 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 it commits so for, fully to this fantastical world building, which is just something that like, I think Hollywood is very toxic to most of the time. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm, I've, I did a little research reading about like the history of this movie and it, it basically like was this uphill climb through the nineties to try to get it made where the Wachowskis had like this idea for a while they were working... The first thing they did was this movie called Assassins that they wrote. They didn't direct. I forget who directed Assassins. That's a Richard Donner movie. That's the movie with Stallone and Antonio Banderas. Um, and that was from 1995. That was the first thing they did with Warner Brothers. Um, and then they did the movie Bound. And they did both of these with the, uh, the producer Lorenzo Di Bonaventura, who's like a big, hyper Hollywood uh, producer. Like, this is also like you're still in a moment where you have producers who are like more powerful than studios, which is mm -hmm. not really a thing anymore, other than like Kevin Feige, who just is his own studio. Um, and so he really believed in the Wachowskis. He gave them the, he basically like greenlit the movie Bound, which is the first movie they direct which is a smaller movie. The budget on that was $6 million. That was a critical success. They used this to sort of like start pitching the Matrix to people. Um, Joel Silver, big Hollywood mega producer, is the person who like comes in and believes in this project and starts pitching it to Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers, even with like these big mega producers behind it, was not on board with this until what the Wachowskis did is they hired comic book artists Jeff Darrow and Steve Skrokey to do a 600 page storyboard for the movie where they just drew the entire movie and then showed that to Warner Brothers and that's what made Warner Brothers um, uh, invest in the film um, and even then like it, it took a little more like screening dailies from like the first thing they shot for the movie this is according to the editor of the film um, was the opening scene where Trinity encounters the agents mm -hmm. they shot that edited it showed it to the Warner executives, and only at that point did they really have, like, full support from Warners. Um, so it was, you know, it was an uphill battle, but it was this sort of, like, bet that I just don't think you would see made anymore. And that's one of the fascinating things about... And we've said this about other stuff. I don't think Fellowship of the Ring would get made anymore. I don't think, um, you know, obviously, obviously, stuff like the Star Wars prequels, there are new Star Wars movies. They're nothing like those. Yeah. Um, you know, there's just there's a lot of stuff from that moment that would not be made in the same way today. You have new stuff based on that stuff today, like the Lord of the Rings TV show Amazon is doing, and a new Matrix movie Lana Wachowski is doing. But that stuff exists because of these bets that were made back in the day that proved to be profitable. I don't see those new bets being made. Yeah. It's yeah, and it's it's one thing that just makes the Matrix still feel super special. Is you're like, fuck it, man. Like nothing, nothing, nothing is like this, and it just kind of feels like until some sort of big seismic shift happens in Hollywood, Hollywood will not make something like this again. No, um, as long as we're under sort of the the Disney IP model, um, you know that's that's not happening, and it's a bummer. But there you go. And you know, one of the things I love about the Wachowskis is that they very much once they were done with the matrix leveraged that like star power to just keep doing crazy shit 
They like yes, never yeah. really compromised. They ne- like again until 2021 this year didn't like go back to that well, you know. And even then, it does not look like the Matrix Resurrections is really going back to that well in a traditional sense of that term. No, yeah, um, <laughs> and and it's something where like. And I, I kind of have all, like a little bit conflicted feelings about it because there it, it'll be something to talk about when we get to the the sequels because the sequels like shut down the possibilities of the Matrix like I think intentionally like they're they're like it's a self contained story it has right. an ending it's it ends in a way that like this kind of big IP fantasy ish franchise thing like usually doesn't have because it shuts down the possibility for like the bigger world building right like in many ways like the ending of the matrix um resurrection or revolutions god fucking titles of these movies um (laughs) is is kind of like if return of the jedi had ended with like the force not existing anymore or something right like like star wars leaves it i mean star wars is the episode four five six like that shit it leaves itself intentionally open to be this big world that you could tell any kind of story in the first matrix movie feels like it could be that um, because it, I mean, because it, it's it, the first Matrix specifically feels very Star Wars-y in its plot. Um, and, but then the sequels, like, intentionally push really hard against that idea. This is one of the reasons why I think, like, you don't have, like, it just doesn't make sense to have the Matrix comic books and the, like, Matrix prestige streaming TV show and the, like, triple A, like, EA fucking Matrix open world RPG or whatever. Like, it's very easy to imagine an alternate universe where that's what the Matrix was. The Matrix continued to be a multimedia franchise because they never made Reloaded and and Revolutions. And it was just that first movie and then Enter the Matrix and Path of Neo and that kind of stuff. And they like started with little multimedia projects. And maybe they you did have sequels to the Matrix films, but they were much more conventional Hollywood sequels that were much more open-ended, that left the franchise possibilities open for infinity. And there's a part of me that kind of, after watching this movie again... I think I remember why the sequels had the backlash they did is because they they push back against that idea. And there's a part of me that wants the just like, I just want like kind of a shitty Matrix movie. Like a part of me just wants a (laughs) shitty, like here's just another guy who wakes up, you know, gets pulled out of the Matrix and then he gets his Kung Fu powers and he fights some agents and shit. And like, there's so many cool possibilities that this movie opens up with its world building. That, like, I really wish I could have both. I both want the, like, ah, fuck that shit, we're just telling our story and we're in control of it thing, which is the thing I respect. And then I also want the, but I also like shitty franchise bullshit. Obviously I do. Like, like I also would love to have, like, my sort of, like, middling, giant, AAA budget, $200 million, like, Matrix video game released on the fucking PS5. That's, that isn't very satisfying, and it feels like you're a little bit disappointed by it, but you get a little bit of your Matrix <laughs> wish fulfillment from it enough that it makes me happy. Like, I kind of wish I could have both those things, you know? So you kind of want Matrix to have taken, like, the Gundam approach of, like, this one core continuity that, like, does its very principled thing that, like, subverts and, like, ends the story. And then also just infinite AU, like, alternate universe Matrixes where you just play with the ideas. Yes, I want Matrix build fighters. Like, that's what what (laughs) I want. Because you'd also have to get Matrix Wing and Matrix C Destiny. And, yes. and all that shit also. But then eventually you get Matrix Build Fighters. Like, that's that that would be ideal. Yeah. I was going to say, what is um, Matrix Fighter G Gundam? But, like, 
that's just that's, that's just, just the matrix, the matrix at a certain is. point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. No. I mean, it's that is something that does feel very anime though about it because there are plenty of anime you and I can point to that have that same feeling, right? Of like, mm-hmm. this is a one season contained thing that's perfect, and I wish there were like a billion spinoffs or something, right? Like. Um, just off the top of my head, like Death Note and Full Metal Alchemist are two really obvious, like ones that people love and everybody knows, but are like small, self-contained stories that end very definitively and don't have a million. Death Note has some that are kind of obscure, but like are not like they haven't made like Full Metal Alchemist two, three, four, and five. Right. Yeah. I feel, but like, I guess the difference is that there you have these are like, you know, they're not like 100 volumes of manga but you're talking right. about like 20 plus volumes of a manga sure, sure, like yeah. that that you have this very long story which is why i think it kind of works for those um whereas with the matrix it just feels like we could have milked it just we just could have built it just a little bit more and then you get to have the respectable artistic like thing you get to do also um well so this is great and i think this will be a rich vein of conversation to continue on with when we do the other stuff sean yeah. but do you want to just like shift gears and just continue just by talking about the movie itself and dive yes. into that yeah let's right. let's 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 jack in to the matrix jonathan <laughs> that always that always looks very traumatic to me in these movies the getting the giant thing in the back of your neck and then yes. having it and then having it pulled out always looks very satisfying in like an unintentional asmr kind of way like getting that out of your neck like like when someone like pops their back like ah that looks good I both agree with you, but then also it then makes me feel like, but then what is the like physical sensation one has when you just have a giant hole that's just in the fucking base of your fucking neck, basically? Like, that's a guy, like, do you feel a breeze going through there? Like, do you have to put a little blanket over it? Like, like what, like, what is that? Like, does everyone need to wear a scarf in the world of the Matrix? Because it's just like, it's so cold inside of my brain right now because there's just a hole leading up there. That would be very funny if everyone in the Matrix, like on the Nebuchadnezzar, were just wearing nice scarves. Yes. And like one of the characters, like Mouse or someone, is like constantly knitting for the other crewmates. When you go to Zion, you learn that like in their culture, the, like, the scarf knitter is like one of the most respected <laughs> professions in the world of the Matrix. See, I think you're proving your own point, Sean, here, which is that there's a lot of world building in this that makes you excited and thinking about other possibilities. You exactly. know Exactly. So let's talk about it. I mean, what makes The Matrix so good? That is a big question that will take an entire podcast uh-huh. to break apart. I guess we should just start with the world that they've built because this movie, this is a really clear three-act movie. It's super teachable. It's great. It's got a very long second act that sort of has two parts to it, which is Neo on the Nebuchadnezzar learning about the world and then going to meet the Oracle. And then the third act is going to rescue Morpheus. Um but that first act of just Thomas Anderson in the Matrix until he wakes up, there is a part of me, Sean, that would gladly take the amnesia serum so I could watch this movie knowing nothing about uh-huh. it because it is such a wickedly effective, like, this movie has a big central idea. It has a big buy-in, a big ask. I think today, because the Matrix is like synonymous with itself and you can just say it and everyone knows what it is, it's easy to forget what a fucking ask this is of an audience to like buy into and how just utterly gracefully this movie gets you into it while also being weird and like not sacrificing its weirdness. 
Yeah, absolutely. And part of it is like the pacing of it is so perfect because like it's almost exactly 30 minutes from the beginning of the movie to where Neo wakes up like yeah. in like the birthing chamber or whatever. Um, and and it's just like there's it's so economical the way that they construct that um, first 30 minutes of the movie to give you that sense of like unease about the world. Um, and give you just enough detail to get a sense of what's going on. But I also love that, like, how mysterious it all is. Like, they don't give you any of the information about Morpheus or who he is. Like, you are slowly piecing that together for, like, Neo has already been looking for Morpheus for presumably years beforehand. Presumably Morpheus is some sort of legend amongst hackers within the Matrix. And that's, like, part of how they get people and bring them out and all that kind of stuff. But the movie never explains that to you it doesn't open with like a five minute narration from keanu reeves saying my name is thomas anderson but really i'm neo <laughs> when i was 16 years old i committed every kind of cyber crime that you can imagine right like they give you some of that exposition later when agent smith kind of gives it to you in the interrogation but the movie just lets you hang and kind of put pieces together bit by bit as you're going along because I don't think you realize at first how much in medias rest you actually are when the story begins because you don't, it doesn't tip its hand to that until Trinity shows up and Neo's at the party and they have this very like mysterious conversation and you realize, oh, like you think that Neo is just this sort of like everyday, everyman sort of like protagonist character, which he has those elements of, but he's not, he's not quite Luke Skywalker. Right, like the plot in the structure is very hero's journey esque, but part of the magic of the Matrix is like there are a couple of key diversions. I think this is one of them. That's like Neo has already been seeking for the thing that he needs to be seeking for very actively. Um, you just have not been with him on that part of the journey yet. Yes, it, narrative economy. We've talked about this a lot. Is a lost art in Hollywood, generally speaking. And like, if the Matrix were made today. It would be a 10-hour streaming series for Netflix, and episode one would be 75 minutes long, and it would end with him hearing about Morpheus. Like, yes. it would, you would not get to, like, him getting out of the Matrix until, like, hour four, you know? Like, it would take so fucking long to get through this shit, because no, no one today would start with, yeah, he already knows who Morpheus is, and he's heard of Trinity, and, like, he's in, he's on the move, he's, we're a little in medias rest, which is, like, a totally normal screenwriting thing. Yes. I this is not like the Wachowskis being like innovative geniuses here. They're just very very good screenwriters. But like plenty of other movies do this in the past. Just today like people would, you know, Cinema Sins would make their video of like, "Hey, how how did Neo hear about Morpheus in the first place? Why aren't we yes. learning about that?" Burr, 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 burr. Because one of like I feel like the curses of modern Hollywood and why movies feel so fucking long all the time is because the first act is like an hour fucking long. Yeah. Or you, or like the movie is just one big first act and it does the shit of like it won't it won't be until like the last line of the movie until you're like oh and now the protagonist has become the hero character that they've been on the journey to become <laughs> right it's like the hero's journey doesn't reach the point of like him becoming a hero until the last second of the until the post credit scene basically like that feels like what we do half the time now. And it's so nice to watch a movie that, as you say, it's not a revolutionary technique, but it's a very necessary one to keep the structure of what is basically a very tight two-hour movie. Like, it gives you the space to then have all the rich world building and character development in the meat of the movie where it should be after you've established the premise and you've got all that stuff underway, rather than trying to stuff 
all this like character development work at the very beginning where it's going to ultimately become irrelevant once the main plot is set in motion later. Yeah, I mean, I think this is just one of the general rules of world building to me, which is that it's almost always more captivating by suggestion than by exposition. Yeah. Um, this is like, to me, the ultimate lesson of like Yoshiyuki Tomi no Gundam is like yeah. that motherfucker and the further into his career you go, the less he does formal exposition until g Reco. He ties an anchor to your leg, throws you in the deep end of the pool and says, swim, motherfucker. Right? Like, and that yes. to me is like, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, tie that anchor to my leg. I fucking love it. And the Matrix isn't that mean about it. But it is very, very like, this world exists and we're picking a starting point, but the world is the world. And we don't have to start at the point the world starts, right? Yeah. We can start with Thomas Anderson as a formed being who we pick up with and then goes on this journey. Um, and it's just very good at that basic equation. You know, God, like, compared to Star Wars, Rey doesn't get a lightsaber until the closing scene of her trilogy. Yes. You know? Like, what a... what a There's no clearer example to me than that. But, like, it's, it's everything. I think of, like, the amazing Spider-Man. Like, Peter doesn't get bit by the spider until, like, the 45-minute mark of that movie, right? Mm-hmm. yeah something it's, crazy it's, like it, that yeah it's it is that kind of thing of just like it's you you can't do that it's it's fucking it's maddening and it's become more and more common i feel um in in modern filmmaking and the matrix is just this nice very refreshing like yeah we got to move through this stuff and i think part of it is that a lot of modern movies feel like they just like are insulting to the audience like you just kind of assume the audience isn't really paying attention which is why you restate the same thing multiple times and you have this very long first act it's like the matrix is just like no keep up come on like we're just moving like you can pick up through inference like what the situation is with neo and trinity and morpheus and all that background without having specific dialogue telling you about it because you're not a fucking moron let's just go ahead with the story and it's just nice to be respected by a piece of media I love in the first act of this movie how much is conveyed through just basic aesthetics. Yeah. Like, our, so we start with the big scene with Trinity, big, fun, you know, bombastic action sequence that is that leaves a lot of mysteries open, like the bullet time thing showing off, like, Trinity's, like, sort of, like, kung fu powers and, like, oh, what kind of world are we in? What are these agents? You know, she's doing all these crazy jumps, um, and then she disappears after this car crash. And so it's a very, like, good, like, mic drop opening. But then we meet Thomas Anderson, we meet Keanu Reeves in his room with like the green glare of the screen shining on his face. And it's basically just through the space, the mise-en-scene of his room that we know who he is. Mm -hmm. Like there does not have to be a line where he wakes up and goes, oh man, it was a long night hacking. <laughs> like he's, just, yeah. he's a hacker. And then like someone comes and buys a program from him, which he keeps in a book of Jean-Louis Baudrillard's Simulacra and Simulacrum to tell you what the movie will be about. Um, and just it's all these sort of details. And part of that is, I think, I really re like thought about this a lot last night because um, you and I both are watching the new 4K Blu-ray set they did for the yes. Matrix trilogy. And one of the things that does is it restores sort of the original theatrical color timing of the original Matrix, which in subsequent DVDs and Blu-rays was like way oversaturated to be like a super garish green. And in the actual Matrix, it's sort of a teal wash over the screen during the Matrix scenes. It's, it's very green, 
but it is not like shouting in your face like there is still a color range to it and yeah. some of this you just need to have restored for like HDR to work so you can have the actual color range to do a, a dynamic range um, but I think one of the things that that teal does is something just feels off and I like that it's this, it's light enough that you don't necessarily, like I'm thinking about it because I'm doing a podcast and I've seen the movie a hundred times, but I just realized like it's sort of like an insidious thing that gets under your skin while you're watching. It's not this like overpowering, like everything is just hyper green. Um, and so that first 30 minutes, you just, oh, something feels off about the reality and how much mise-en-scene and cinematography choices and the color timing all play into that without Neo having to sit down and go, something feels off about my reality, damn it. You know, he does have the lines about like, do you ever feel like you're dreaming, that sort of thing, but it's all through the flow of action. Yeah, no, exactly. That it does, it's, it's because his story in those first 30 minutes is that, like, he knows deep down that there is something fundamentally wrong about the world he is living in, right? That it's like, there is just something off. Um, and, and that's both established through, like, character writing and dialogue and acting and performance, but it is also, it's so much of it is also established by editing, shot choices, and as you say, like, the color timing, color grading stuff. Which, which, because uh, you had watched the 4K Blu-rays before. I bought these like a year ago and have been waiting for us to do a podcast on them for me to actually right. watch it. <laughs> um, and and this is easily the best looking 4K Blu-ray I've watched. Like this is, if people have have like a 4K pl Blu-ray player, um, this is a must own because it's a perfect movie. Everyone would like this movie um, and it looks gorgeous. And it does make a huge difference because my memory of The Matrix because the only version of the Matrix I've ever seen is the version that has this like piss green filter on it for like ninety percent of the film, and it the movie is so much richer looking, and I think the effect of the kind of like as you say the sort of like tealish sort of like almost this kind of like flattening effect that that kind of slight blue just like dull like a quality to some of like the coloring that elements within the matrix has intentionally just make the world feel slightly off kilter and it's much more effective than it looking like someone dropped like half of the film into like a mountain dew or something like that and then just like <laughs> wiped it off and then put it back on it's like well it looks a little weird but it should be fine um it's 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 a really engrossing experience. And then also all that stuff is also reinforced by the, like the kind of like weird sort of sudden editing and things like that as he's like falling asleep and waking up very suddenly and having things he's not sure are dream sequences or things that really happened. Um, all of that in those 30 minutes, which the movie then, you know, doesn't do those things anymore past that point. It's very contained to that first 30 minute sequence where so much of the movie feels like it has this dreamlike strange quality in which it's written and, and acted and edited. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's it's not even that many scenes. It's yeah. Neo in his room, following the White Rabbit to the club and meeting Trinity. At work the next day, he gets the call from Morpheus and then he gets arrested. He gets the bug in him. He wakes up in his room. Trinity calls him and is like, get out here. And then he goes and meets Morpheus. That's it. It's really fast. And and yet it conveys so much. And I think here is where we need to talk about Mr. Keanu Reeves. Yes. Because perfect, perfect casting. And I remember from the time to now, people being like, yeah, Keanu Reeves, you know, he's fine. He's just, he's so wooden. But fuck all of you. Keanu Reeves, is he the rangiest actor on the planet? No. Does every actor need to be? No. Is he 
unbelievably perfect casting for this movie? Yes. Yes. I don't think this movie would work with anyone else in that part. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Like it, it's 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 thing where you know. Look, I've watched Bram Stoker's Dracula. I know that that you know. <laughs> Keanu Reeves isn't great in everything he's been in. I don't think that's his fault. They asked him to do a British accent. It was a big mistake immediately. Um, yeah. <laughs> but in The Matrix, he is perfect. Like, he, he, because he captures, I think, that, like, he's kind of an everyman and he's kind of not, which is what right. the Neo character is, right? Like, it's, it's, he's both has a slightly kind of blandish male action star thing to him. But there's something slightly off-kilter about Keanu Reeves. I don't think we realize that until eventually, you know, he started making the John Wick movies. You're like, this dude is, like, awesome and also seems to be a little bit crazy in the best way possible. Um, but, like, that that's still there. Like, that's still there in these movies that, like, there's something about him that's just slightly different. Um, and he has a very kind of natural movie star kind of charisma to him that's not a, like, Brad Pitt or George Clooney overwhelming charisma. It's a very kind of quiet charisma that works so well for these films. You know, the famous story about The Matrix is that the Wachowskis first pitched this script to Will Smith. And this is true. This is not a rumor. Will Smith himself has talked about this. Um, Will Smith, a couple years ago, talked about it and said... The when he was pitched it, they were planning. They wanted Val Kilmer for Morpheus and Will Smith for Neo, and I, I actually can see the Val Kilmer one. I, I Lawrence Fishburne would is better and perfect, but like I can see where they were coming from with that. This is no disrespect to Mr. Will Smith. I love Will Smith. That would have been catastrophically bad casting yeah. for this. Will Smith is too charismatic. He is too much of a movie star. He is too Will Smith in that you look at him and you see Will Smith. You don't see whatever character he's playing, right? Yeah. Um, which is fine. There's lots of movie stars like that. But the thing about Neo is that you have to have someone who can kind of effectively present a blank slate. And I think the Wachowskis deploy Keanu Reeves with surgical precision in this movie. They know exactly what they want from him. And his like kind of wooden dialogue in that first half hour is just so obviously intentional when you watch it now. Like it is not like they asked Keanu Reeves something and he didn't deliver. They clearly directed him in a very certain way to be a little stiff and awkward because he's a stiff and awkward person living in a reality that doesn't feel right to him. And I think particularly when you look at the movie through like the, the trans reading, for instance, there's this sort of like discomfort in his skin that I think you get in those early scenes with Thomas Anderson that is really effective. And it's something that Keanu Reeves is sort of a quiet enough actor that, and a bl sort of blank enough in that stretch that you can really latch onto. And then, of course, once the movie gets cooking, Keanu Reeves also happens to be one of the more physically capable Hollywood actors who can, like, do stunts and then also be doubled in a very graceful way, which we've talked about with John Wick many times. Like, yeah. that's part of why that works, and that is true here in The Matrix, where he met all the people he went on to do John Wick with. Um, but, like, it's, it is uncannily good casting, I think, when you think of casting not just as, like, who are we going to get who's going to knock everyone's socks off? But, like, what does the movie need in these scenes to convey the ideas of the movie? Keanu is really crucial to that in this movie. Yeah, and I, th I think in particular, the scene that illustrates all that is is him at the, like, software job or whatever that he works in. And he's getting chewed out by his boss. 
Um, and I love the detail of there's a dude with lights like cleaning the windows that he can't help but constantly look at. That's like it's got it almost like David Lynchian kind of quality to that yeah. whole sequence. That's part of the like uncomfortable dreamlike thing of like this weird detail that is being focused on of this like uncomfortable screeching sound of the window being cleaned that Neo is looking at and not really paying attention to his boss. And and that's where he's the most sort of like stiff, awkward um like uncomfortable in his own skin that and then when he's later having to kind of like scramble around because that's where he's having to be thomas anderson right he's not getting to be neo which is who he knows he is he has to be this other person which that's obviously like the trans reading there is extremely clear but you can also just extrapolate that to any i feel like any person who like we are all you know subjugated to be something that we're not by the systems in which we exist right like your job school your family like people around you have expectations about the kind of thing you are supposed to be and you are expected to put yourself in those boxes and then especially at a place like work or your job like you are being effectively coerced to be that thing because they are the things that give you access to like respect in society and money and the ability to live and so you're being forced to be someone that you're not and for some people, that's going to be, like, a minor discomfort and inconvenience. For other people, it is, like, you know, they're, like, killing who you are. Um, and I think that that's a, it's a really effective portrayal there of where you can see, like, this sort of, like, quiet anguish in the character in those scenes where he's, like, being forced to be this, like, fucking office monkey dude that is just, like, he hates so much being he can't even really, like, look at his boss. Instead, he's just looking at the window being cleaned the whole time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's built on those little details and the performance and all of that. And those things don't need a bunch of time to develop. They just need these like glimpses, right? Which is what the movie gives us. Yeah. Yeah. I love that whole scene. You know, you first hear Lawrence Fishburne when he comes on the phone with, I just, he gets the FedEx thing. He opens it. The Nokia phone, big fucking fat Nokia phone. I love that. I do love all the 90s details. It's one thing that is so brilliant about the premise of this movie is because they very clearly explain that the machines based the world on 1999. The movie's never actually dated, right? It actually becomes kind of funny over time that, like, this is a programmed version of a 1999. So all of those details, just they have a certain, like, affect to them that I really like. I love Um, the detail that Agent Smith gives you where he says it's like like the late 20th century, which was the peak of your human civilization. It's like, okay. Yeah, sure. Pretty I guess much, yeah. it's like, you know, I I think there are some other times where we did some cool shit. Like, maybe let's just go back to the Renaissance or something before we fucked. So, like, let's go pre-Industrial Revolution, and maybe in some ways it would have been even better. Um, but, okay, well, sure, well, I'll take the 1990s. You know, at least it's before <laughs> the Iraq War. Like, that's nice. Yeah, you know, we're, we're on the... We're, we, we, we had heard of global warming, but we didn't know what it was yet. It's great. It's blissful ignorance. Yes. I mean, I do think there's a purpose to that. I think, uh-huh. like... This movie is about the 90s as a period of blissful ignorance and everybody enslaved to a system that they don't know they're enslaved to. If you're going to pick any decade yeah. in, like, modern human history, that's the decade you pick, yes. Yeah, and it's about, like, this being, like, the the turning point at which, like, after this, we fucked it up and, like, civilization yeah. will be destroyed. Like, obviously, it kind of has to be that way because it's when the movie was literally made. But it's part of, like, I think the movie was reading the room like the political room a lot stronger than like a lot of people were like realizing at the time right that's part of what we talked about it's fucking prescient yeah it's It's the political like apathy of a lot of the broader american attitude in the 1990s 
is part of what leads us into all the shit we've been in since then in America. And, and the Matrix sort of, you know, really taking that pulse is very effective. Yes. But anyway, that scene where, you know, Morpheus gets on the phone with Neo and walks him through trying to escape from the building. I've always loved that scene. In terms of talking about how this movie guides you to the revelation of what the Matrix is, that is one of those, like, crucial, exciting moments. And I do love that later on, there's never, like, a scene where Neo goes, Oh, all this code, that's how you knew where I was in the cubicles, and that's how you guided me around. You just make that connection watching the movie because you're a sentient adult who can understand things. Um, and there's just stuff like that. That it's it's. Uh, I love all of that side of it where for this first 30 minutes we are strictly in Neo's POV and we're not like cutting out to understand like how Morpheus is manipulating the system or anything like that. You know? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So all of this is great. Uh, okay. He gets arrested and we meet Hugo Weaving. Mm-hmm. Fucking Hugo Weaving in this movie yeah. is a goddamn miracle. I love everything about him. Last night, I'm watching the movie with uh, my nice headphones on, which I don't know if I had done for this movie anytime recently. Watch all of Hugo Weaving's scenes with nice headphones on because there is so much verbal nuance to what he's doing. There's that, like, obviously his whole speech cadence is so fun and we've all done the voice and it's great. But there's this moment where, uh, where Neo has the thing where he says, how about here's my plan? I give you the finger and you give me my one phone call. And Which in the is the of that, most 1990s thing that has ever happened yes. in any movie ever. It's just like, let me give you the finger. It's like, uh, yeah, that's nobody, nobody, nobody says that. Let me give you the finger. This is not a thing that people say anymore. <laughs> but when he does that, he says, I'll give you the finger. And he pauses and you hear Hugo even go, hmm. And it's just this little like, yeah. Mm, and that's his, prefer- like, it's so built on those little verbal ticks. And I love it. And just the way that scene is set up to just kind of luxuriate in his creepy, slow voice performance is so good. I love it. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm just going to like put my cards on the table now because this is the thing I'm most excited about for watching the sequels is like, I, th- I think Hugo Weaving and Agent Smith is the best thing in the Matrix, like the series. Um, <laughs> and it's the thing I'm most excited about for watching the sequels because I feel like that's some of the stuff of what they did with that character. I feel like I just didn't have the media experience to sort of like fully yeah. get. Um, and it's like one of the, the things that's always been like a question mark. One I've, I've wanted to go back and watch the movies to like dig into that character deeper. Because there's something about Agent Smith that to me is just so fascinating. The idea of this like computer program that is a part of the system that is being forced into this like human shell and it like detests so immensely like everything that it is and everything that it has to do and everything that it has to be um and it's like he's because in many ways he feels like he is the most human of all the characters it's that kind of like cliche um but it's so effective and hugo weaving's performance is just utterly electric that he is capturing this like very like alienness to his performance where the character feels inhuman um in a way that i just love especially because it feels like part of what hugo weaving is pulling on especially in that interrogation scene is the like actual old school pop culture concept of the men in black obviously not the will smith movie idea of the men in black or that comic book series but the actual like government conspiracy of like ufo conspiracy theorist people who 
you know, there were all these claims of like, if you saw UFOs or whatever, and then you were reporting about it, that you'd be visited mysteriously in the middle of the night by like tall, pale gentlemen wearing black suits. And the part of the conspiracy was that they themselves were actually aliens. That like, it wasn't that they were just like normal members of the government from some sort of like secret, like bureau somewhere. It was that like, these are like aliens wearing human clothing, basically, and like human skin. Uh, and and they were always described as having weird, bizarre, pat, like speech patterns and things like that, and intonations that are just off enough that you don't really think that they're like a human. Then you get this like uncanny sense that what you're talking to is both human, and not human at the same time. That's like what the like original idea of the Men in Black was. I feel like that kind of has gotten erased in popular culture by the Will Smith movie. Um, that like people think of the men in black as just being like secret government agent people that are either good guys or bad guys, depending on what your like story is. And I love how much to me, Hugo Weaving, like I want him to be the villain in an episode of the X-Files, which also has <laughs> this kind of idea to it because it's very much, it captures that energy of like, there's something just utterly uncanny about your performance. You weird man. I love it. You, you fucking terrifies me. Um, in the scenes where he's like, interrogating morpheus is just like so uncomfortable how much anger he is he's like keeping inside it's it's just an incredible performance yeah i you can't say enough good things about it and again the the wachowskis the casting in this movie is mm -hmm. so good and they they deploy actors as i said with surgical precision like it is they know exactly what they want from hugo weaving and they give him that space to fly with it, you know? Just, like, unleash this weird thing you're doing with the character. And I think there was something about watching it last night, Sean, with, like, this, you know, we're going to talk about it on a podcast eye, which we've talked about is a little different from just watching for fun. Yeah. And it's just something struck me about, like, this is such a weird performance. Yeah. This is, like, it's one of those, because obviously Agent Smith is one of the most parodied things in The Matrix. His whole speech pattern and everything. Um, you know, we've heard every comedian on earth do their take on, you know, Mr. Anderson, that kind of thing, right? Yeah. But, like, watching him do it and just seeing it, it's like, it is unsettling and creepy and funny and, as you say, just raw anger. And I think, as you said, electric is just the way to, to say it. It is like, it is like lightning in a bottle energy on film and... You know, they introduce so many good ideas. And I actually, I agree. I actually think this is something the sequels, one of the best things they do is I think the sequels take as their starting point for Agent Smith, that whole speech about like, I want to escape from this place. Yeah. It's the smell, that whole thing. Yeah. And that's the stuff that like, I just didn't remember that he had that level of characterization in this first movie. Like that, because I yeah. remember that that's like where his character arc goes in the sequels. But my memory has always been that that was kind of a thing they invented for the sequels. And it's like, no, you go back and watch this first film. And it's like, that's how he's characterized. Like, he's already very different from the other agents. And the other, I like the way that the other agents are look at him. It's like, like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, like why do you, like, he takes the earpiece stuff off and all that kind of stuff to interrogate Morpheus. That he's clearly going rogue that there's something wrong with him that he is this piece of the system that has come to abhor the system which i think is a very like evocative concept and i was very surprised watching the movie because i had just not remembered that he had that that level of characterization already in the first film it's what makes him the opposite of neo from yeah. the very beginning like th from their first encounter 
they are both people stuck in a system who abhor the system. And like they're going in very opposite directions with that. But they are also both each other's obstacle to escaping that system. Yeah. And that continues through the very end of the Matrix Revolutions. That is like these this trilogy is more of a unit than I think people remember. And it is that through line of Agent Smith is kind of the spine of the three movies. Because I do think like the things they seed with him in this first movie is the most obvious stuff they pick up on in terms of a continuing plot thread. Because otherwise this first movie is pretty self-contained. But like that is the big thing I think they pick up with in, in Reloaded and then even more so Revolutions. Yeah, it, it's it's just, he's so good. It's just, I, so I just want to see an infinite number of scenes of Hugo Weaving playing this character because it's so, so fascinating. Hugo Weaving just had a, uh, had a good year down there in Australasia where he shot this and then over in New Zealand, because Matrix was entirely shot in Australia. Yeah. And then over in New Zealand, he plays Elrond. And, uh, you know, and we have loved Hugo Weaving ever since. Yes. Mr. Gandalf. <laughs> oh, I love him to death. It's, uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that character, I guess, when we cover the third act of this movie. But yeah. I just thought we should flag him here. Because I, I am probably on Team Morpheus as my favorite thing in The Matrix. But if you're going to say Agent Smith is your favorite thing in The Matrix, I will not argue for one second. That is a very good pick because Agent Smith is one of the best things this series gave yeah. us. I mean, it, it, we, we'll talk about it obviously when we get to the sequels. But I think one thing against Morpheus in that argument is that there's only one Morpheus. There's, there's a lot more than just <laughs> one Agent Smith. It's uh, it's very true. There's an infinite number of Agent Smiths. Yeah. All right. Um, or Agents Smith. Maybe we should... Is it like Attorneys General? Yes, yes. It's Agents Smith. Okay. Yeah. That actually makes more sense. Okay. So the, the big scene I want to get to is the revelation where Neo mm -hmm. meets Morpheus and Blue Pill, Red Pill, and the whole speech. And I wrote several pages of notes just about this scene. And some of the exposition that comes after it. But like, I think what I want to do here, Sean, is just dive into what could be its own fucking podcast miniseries. Which is just talking about this central idea of what the Matrix is. Mm -hmm. And like, the, the metaphor, because I do think it's a metaphor that yes. animates this movie. Um, so Neo is brought to that room where Morpheus is. We'll talk about Lawrence Fishburne in a second, because I love that man so much. Mm -hmm. Um... And Morpheus gives him this speech. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind driving you mad. It is this feeling that has brought you to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? Beautiful fucking writing. I don't know if there's any actor on earth who could have really pulled it off other than Lawrence Fishburne because it is so heady and philosophical that mm. you need someone who... I said this on Twitter last night. We are fucking lucky Lawrence Fishburne decided to be an actor and not a cult leader because, man, if that man told me to drink poison, I would do it. Yeah. I, I mean, there is definitely, like, a preacher quality to yes. Morpheus, right? Like, he's he's portrayed as he's, he's like... He's a character who has faith, right? Like, it's yes. not faith in Jesus... It's faith in Matrix Jesus, which is Neo, right? But he right. has this, like, powerful belief that motivates him, and that belief causes other people to follow him, follow him, which is the, like, 
a nice way to say it would be a priest or a preacher, a like less nice way to say it would be cult leader. But it's the same yeah. sort of like social phenomena. And Lawrence Fishburne used for good, used for bad is yes. what you're saying. Right? Um, and Lawrence yeah. Fishburne like captures that energy so like seductively um, in yeah. a good way here. It's just like my God, yeah. we'll we'll talk about yes. the character and the performance okay. in a second. Yes. But I just want to go to that speech because I think that's the key like line in the movie that. You're here because you know something, what you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life that there's something wrong with the world. And I think that speech gets to me at what is brilliant about The Matrix is it is such a multivalent metaphor. The mm -hmm. two biggest ones that hit me when I watch these movies now is I think the trans reading is just incredibly compelling because... Uh, one to smuggle that into a Hollywood movie and then kind of it's a time bomb that goes off over time is just you know to the degree I don't I, I have the, the Wachowskis don't give a lot of interviews I don't know how aware they were that that was a conscious thing when they wrote this you know mm -hmm. um, it was several years before um, Lana came out and then you know over a decade before Lily did um, and so there's that side of it and I do think it's just it's it's the best Hollywood has ever gotten at like really like consciously giving that metaphor in a way that allows pe allows like a cisgendered person to understand that idea in like yeah. a really profound way and obviously a trans person to feel seen and like oh my god this makes sense of like some of these ideas but the other one to me is I think there's a Marxist like culture industry reading of this that the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you to the truth. Um, I was just teaching recently in my film theory like Frankfurt School theory and like Adorno Horkheimer culture industry stuff which is the whole idea that you know in sort of Marxist economic theory that like the, the world and the system and the culture around you exists to keep you docile so that you can be exploited. And I think, you know, in that scene, I see both of those ideas coming out in such full force that I find it very powerful. And I know there's a dozen other readings you can pull out of it too. Those are just the two that hit me. Yeah, like I definitely feel that the Marxist reading is the one that the movie leans in the most heavily. Like it's like the office job, the system, like the, yeah. the government and the police and all that, like trying to enforce this this system to maintain its sort of integrity it has like a very strong systemic marxist reading um and but then it like i think the thing that is brilliant about it, as you're saying is that it can be interpreted any way and it can both be interpreted in that like big political sense which is more the marxist reading but it also can be interpreted in very personal ways which would be the more like transgender reading but it but like it can be read like for anybody i think it's like it's why it's so resonant is because everybody has this experience everybody has to some degree i think the experience of feeling alienated from the world in which you exist um like yes. i just don't know how you could not like maybe there are people who don't i don't know but it seems impossible to me <laughs> that you would be able to go through life and feel perfectly like you fit in 100% of the time in every scenario like it just is impossible like you are you are being forced by culture to wear masks some of those masks you might be comfortable with many you probably really aren't um and that that is something i think that everyone's going to resonate with and it is one thing where i think you can't talk about the matrix in, in you know 2021 without also addressing the way that like the red pill metaphor has been taken by alt-right groups to be because it can resonate also in a very negative way with people who i think are missing basically 99% of the rest of the movie, right? Like the movie has a lot of clear text that is saying this is about radical left politics. Um, it's very much pushing you in that direction. But well, this, and, but this and in isolation, more, like 
can be read enough to be resonant for anyone who has this feeling of like alienation from the world around you, which you can have both in ways that are justified in, and in ways that are unjustified. Yeah, and I will even argue in a moment here, I think The Matrix anticipates its own misreading. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about that because I think the character Cypher is there as an anticipation of its own misreading. And I will yeah. talk about that in a little bit. But like, yeah, just to continue this, I just want to look a little more at the text that Morpheus has here of, of exactly what you're saying, Sean. It is, this is such a multivalent metaphor in the way like I think David Lynch gets at this kind of stuff visually in his work of this like the kind of like almost like dream symbols that just mean so many things at once and it's something film is uniquely equipped to do but you know Morpheus says the matrix is everywhere it is all around us even now in this very room you can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television you can feel it when you go to work when you go to church when you pay your taxes and he has a little wink in his eye there. That is the most like Marxist reading like yes. line in the movie is that whole spiel. There's like a dozen offhand references to people paying taxes over the course of, of the movie. That is one yeah. of those like it, that I think reinforces this. Like it's very intentionally leaning into like Marxist style politics. Yeah. But like I love he goes he goes work, church, taxes. Like yes. this is a political fucking movie. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Which is that you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, into a prison that you cannot taste or see or touch, a prison for your mind. I love that no one else, no one else writing this movie would foreground the exposition of what the Matrix is with the philosophy. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what makes the Matrix so fucking special. Like, if, if if someone else had an idea like this and made a big Hollywood movie, you would be foregrounding the technical side of it. Like, oh, well, the machines used a big supercomputer to build this, this, and this, and all the holograms are made out of... Blah, 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 blah. The Wachowskis don't give a fucking shit about that. Like, yeah. that is... It's a metaphor. And so what? why does Morpheus come in and not actually tell Neo what the Matrix is in a literal sense? It's because that doesn't matter. What matters is like the feeling of the Matrix and you're only going to open someone up to it by starting with that point of empathy. And like that is what makes this such a big multivalent metaphor that this is a movie people are still talking about. And I was thinking about like, you know, the Matrix does ultimately have a very straightforward exposition explanation in the Matrix. It's a computer they're all plugged into. Yeah. But like there is still something about the Matrix movies that when you bring them up today and you use the tagline like what is the Matrix people still want to talk about it and think about it and it seems mysterious and it's because of all of this when Morpheus says no one can be told what the Matrix is you have to see it for yourself that's the movie's whole idea about it is that the Matrix is both this very literal computer simulation in the movie and all of the ideas that signifies yeah and you're 100% right that like it's really important that the order in which the Matrix presents that information is with the metaphorical philosophical ideas and then later for like the sake of having being able to have a concrete plot it then turns that into for the literal reality of this film it has to be this computer bullshit thing but but it by front loading the philosophical idea and then also like keeping that at its heart because throughout then the rest of it it's all about neo being the one it's about him waking up to being able to be so removed from the physical constraints of his actual like of his quote-unquote actual body within the matrix the projection of his body within the matrix that he's able to exist on a higher plane right so it is continuing it's not just front-loading the philosophy then abandoning it the philosophy is out throughout the film but by front-loading it 
it then makes that the primary reading and then the digital stuff is just like a justification for the sake of this individual story to make it a thing that you can then navigate through um so that's like practical rather than you can't have an infinite symbol that is also like the setting of the film itself would make no sense um and there's something about that that like just having this idea of this what is effectively dystopian fiction of that you that everyone is living inside of a like a system that directly is controlling and manipulating your lives um which is you know that's what a dystopian fiction shows you right it's very much like 1984 or brave new world but the thing the thing that is fascinating about the matrix is like what that world is and as it is presented to you in these first 30 minutes of the film is just 1999 america it's like yes there is this weird computer agent shit but that's all this abstract metaphor for like the system and the government which is just what like capitalism and the government does like you are born into a system that is educating you to exist within that system to benefit it right like that is just how society functions in in at certainly at least the modern world if not like by definition how it has to function um and so him presenting that metaphor here right up front it just like immediately puts the audience in the right headspace to start navigating all the ways in which the movie is going to continue to explore and and, and manipulate that concept yeah and you know it's it's not it's 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 a revolutionary text in that sense like it yeah. is it is so when you put it that way that like this presents a dystopia and the dystopia is just literally look out your fucking window that's a really radical message to put yeah. in a hollywood movie you know like we've talked about um that you know if you're going to talk about like the politics of marvel movies or something you have to dumb yourself down to such a fucking level where you're okay with like this is entirely within a range of very conservative thought yeah. right mm -hmm. um that even the most radical stuff is still like the literally the most radical thing in a marvel movie is still t'challa is king right like uh -huh. you know it's it's you're still within such a narrow band and this movie is like burning the fucking doors off when you actually like break it down and what it's saying it's really out there and you know the basics of the philosophy it's coming up it's it's talking about none of this is stuff the wachowskis came up with this is all you know borrowed and pulled yeah. from like Baudrillard is the one the movie keeps coming back to with the simulacra and simulacrum, but it is all histories of Marxist thought and and the culture industry and all these sorts of ideas. But what the movie is doing is bringing it and like synthesizing it all into this cinematic pop text where it kind of is smuggled into the audience because on the most basic level, a nine-year-old like you or me at the time could watch this and just it's a super fun action movie. But it is also like a kind of endlessly rewarding philosophical text if you want to go to that level, which the movie really invites you to do. Yeah, and, and it serves as this extremely potent metaphor, which is important, right? Like it's, it's a, like, you know, like thinking about like a 1984 comparison, right? Like one of the ways that the dystopia of 1984 works is by like reducing people's ability to think by reducing their ability to come up with symbols and language and stuff like that. Um, and so the Matrix providing this like common metaphor that anyone can reach to very easily to describe this phenomena like is super like helpful. And it's something that I think like is informative to like it was like formative to some of my own political thinking at a certain point of like being able to reach to this idea of like the reality in which I am being the, the reality that is being given to me is not necessarily 
the only reality that you can understand or like what actual like physical reality really is um that you are being presented a narrative um that is that you are like allowing yourself to be controlled by that's a very potent idea that is a very important one to to understand and having the matrix as a thing that can just give you to you that that to you in this one word matrix that's really powerful yeah i you know i talked about I was teaching the culture industry and Marxism a couple weeks ago, and I'm looking at my slides right now, and one of them is when I was talking about what are some of the legacies of these ideas we're talking about, because I always try to like actualize it for the students. I just put up a big picture of the Matrix, and I'm like, it's this movie is about everything we've talked about today. It is, you know, it's a product of the culture industry, but it is also about that. It is about all of these things in a really critical, self-reflective way. And of course, all the students nod and go, oh, like, you know, because they we get it. It's just a touchstone that we all have, you yeah. know? Mm -hmm. I, I do want to break down here because I think this stretch of the movie with the the Morpheus meeting Neo and then Neo's rebirth in the real world is the stretch that is, I think, the most conducive to the transgender reading mm -hmm. of the movie. And I want to break that down because it is... It's, it's really sad to think about it this way, but I don't think Hollywood would ever let something this explicitly about that be made by filmmakers they knowingly knew were trans people like not today at least maybe in 20 years hopefully but like yeah. you know i don't think if the the wachowski sisters came onto the scene now and tried to do something like this it would be like that's political that's a third rail we're not going to touch you know and what it is is this really beautiful graceful elegant like metaphor for this feeling of being out of your own body that I think anyone can watch this movie and if you have an ounce of empathy in your body can come away with understanding this you know what I mean mm -hmm. and so it is I mean there's the really obvious stuff that, that, that we've already talked about of like you're here you know something you can't explain it but you feel it you felt it your entire life there's something wrong it's like a splinter it's driving you mad and that is just very frequently when you listen to trans people about the the feeling of like what it is to start to know that you are born in the wrong, the misgendered body and that feeling of dysphoria. Like the movie is giving voice to that very directly. Um, one of the ones that hit me last night because I think it is just a, such a potent image is the moment where Neo starts getting pulled out of the Matrix is he looks at the mirror and it's broken and he mm -hmm. sees a broken splintered reflection and then it coalesces and becomes a whole image of him. He pokes at it. It becomes porous. And then its substance envelops him. And I think that is like... it's And it's again, it's every image in this is very multivalent. This is not the only reading. But I do think when you look at it in that sense of like being in the wrong body, that is a symbol that I find just incredibly powerful. Yeah, definitely. It's, yeah. It, it's, I think it's the thing that is like really powerful about it being the multivalent symbol is just saying is that like it makes it an idea that for a lot of people I think is probably very foreign and hard to understand and it makes it something that you can you can you can feel also because I think everybody has some degree of of that like for yeah. some people it's going to be extreme for other people like like for me like like something I think of is being in high school and realizing like that you know i like so like i'm would say that i'm basically like on an asexual spectrum it's something i've never really talked about much on the podcast but that's something i kind of came into realizing in college was like 
observing in other people behavior and ideas and things and realizing like I've been trying to myself feel or act in that way and that's not how I actually feel or act. I've only been trying to act because it's what I observe as being what is correct or right. And I think whether it's like, I think everyone will have that kind of experience in some part of your life. And then for people who are trans, obviously it's going to be a much bigger one because gender is one of the most heavily enforced sort of ideas that we put on people in our culture. And so it's it's really it's really powerful to have that sort of metaphor that bridges that experience from, uh, from across other kinds of people. Because I definitely myself had to at some point like really kind of think hard about like what is that experience of being trans when I I knew somebody who transitioned um, and mm-hmm. being like what is that perspective? How do you feel about it? Like how does that make you feel? And realizing that it's like that's not actually an alien experience that everybody has some version of that that you go through, big or small, and that this that it exists on like a spectrum of how you see and observe and deal with yourself in the world. Absolutely. And and that's a really beautiful way of putting it. It you know, when you think about when you encounter like if you're a cisgendered person who's never thought about it and you encounter the idea of someone being transgender, it's understandable that that would be confusing or alien at first, right? Yeah, and and if you have that empathy to think about it and to to go along with it, you realize what a common vein of humanity there is there, right? Mm-hmm. And it's degrees, and we're all different, but it is this common vein of humanity. And I think that's one of the things I just love about that broken mirror image. I think that's a very like, if you don't see yourself in there in some degree, I I don't know who you are. You know what I mean? Yeah. Then then um, you're like part of the system. Like if you're seeing right. that and you're like. Then you're fucking Agent Smith. Like, that's where it's like, I hope that those people don't exist. I hope that everybody can see, like, some part of themselves and the experience that Neo has in that moment. Yeah. And then it continues. I mean, so you have the birthing moment is just so explicit in all of this. He's in a pod. He's covered in goo. He's connected by wire. It's a womb. You know, like, his, like, when Neo comes out, he doesn't even have visible gender on him right like he's like a baby it's he's completely shaved and smoothed and looks completely androgynous and then there is the long birth canal he shoots out through disconnected from the the cables the umbilical cord and then falls out a hole it's not subtle it's birth and it's violent and traumatic and then i think there's two big things that happen on the nebuchadnezzar that really also tie into the trans reading of this film which is the extensive surgery to make his body real again and his yeah. is like to restore it to this inner self image is a very potent metaphor and then all of the characters in the movie uh, on the Nebuchadnezzar having chosen names not given names and that being and of course the big fucking fuck you hero moment of Neo at the end of the movie is my name isn't Thomas Anderson it's Neo you son yeah. of a bitch he doesn't say that part but you know it's like with that tone of voice um, and you know, again, that that idea of the the name you choose, and and that's that's where it's a very literal, like one to one trans reading. But again, all of those things, um, I think, call to some of those pieces of common humanity we were talking about, right? Yeah, that it's it's about like the identity and the self that you that you make, right? That 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 yeah. is what is important, not the one that you have been offered up or like forced upon you by society. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it, it does like, you know, because because we're talking about the, the gender reading. There is, as you, you called on, like the sexuality reading. I think there's also just the idea of, of 
performativity, as you talked about, yep. like, in the workplace. I think also about, like, performing masculinity or femininity, which even if you are completely comfortable in your own skin, you probably have feelings of that that are very uncomfortable. Um, all of that is there. And again, it is, it's why when I, you know, still see people on Twitter sometimes being like, man, what if we are living in a computer simulation? I'm just like, that's the, that is literally the least interesting part of the Matrix. Yeah. Is, just... Are we living in a simulation? It's just so not the point. Like, it's yeah. something where it's like, like, in many ways, I don't even really think of The Matrix as being a science fiction movie. That's kind of why I called it more fantasy early on, because it's yeah. just The Matrix is not interested in the idea of, like, of of the, the mechanics of The Matrix itself that much. Like, it's interested in it to the extent that it needs it to establish the movie and, like, the setting. And then, it, but it's not exploring that, right? Like, if you compare this to, like, the Doctor Who episode Extremis, which has a very similar premise, that is much more interested in exploring the idea of what is it like to live in a computer program? What do, is consciousness and sentience real if you are, if it's being simulated through a computer and those kinds of ideas, rather than here, it's being used as a jumping off point to explore like philosophy through a fantastical lens. That's a good point because, you know, I hope it doesn't come across that I'm saying those questions aren't interesting in a vacuum. It's just that in this movie, that's not the point, you know? Yes. Like, because as you say, Extremis is a really good example of how you can take those ideas and make something hyper compelling around them. I mean, obviously, the idea of what is sentience in the digital world is like, I mean, that goes back to Metropolis. That yeah. is a, a tale as old as time. Um, and in film, literally as old as film, because film is an art form from technology so it's always going to be there and it is there in the matrix it's just not i feel like the one of the top 10 things on the minds of the people making the movie you know yeah, yeah. it, it yeah. feels like it's like a way for you to be able to explore these other ideas not the idea itself that they're interested in exploring one last part of the symbol that we need to talk about is the red pill blue pill right so i mean you know on its surface it's a very simple idea it is the the pill of of truth and waking up or the pill of going back to sleep and acknowledging your enslavement to the system right and of course this has been co-opted by the alt-right um, by QAnon, by forces like that of the red pill being this like turning into a fucking asshole traitor <laughs> yeah um, i mean it's there because they have this like made up fantasy world they live in of some of like bizarre conspiracy theory horseshit and so the idea for them is that the red pill is breaking out of the conventional world you you think you're living in. But really, that's all this, like, elaborate, crazy, horseshit conspiracy connected to, like, 4chan and that shit of all things. Um, and that's obviously insanity. Um, it's it's just, like, such an absurd... It's, it's, it's this, like, very insane way of looking at it of, of like taking those symbols because what you're doing is like co-opting the symbol about like trying to break out of systems of conspiracy and, and or like to break out of a reality that's been constructed for you and what they're doing is just jumping into an even more elaborately constructed fabricated reality which is their conspiracy horseshit which is all untrue um so instead of waking up they're diving into like an even more heinous fabrication and this is what I mean when I say I actually think the movie anticipates its own misreading. Because there's the character of Cypher, played by Joey Pants himself, Joey, Joe Pantoliano, who I am always shocked when I go back to the marketing for this movie. He's on every poster. 
because he was the fourth build alongside Carrie-Anne Moss, Keanu Reeves, and Lawrence Fishburne. It wasn't um, um, Agent Smith, Hugo Weaving in that position. It's Joe Pantoliano because he was really big in the 90s. And so he's the one who's like on all the marketing, which is kind of funny. He's really good in the movie. I like yes. Joe Pantoliano. Because he's but, um, also, like, I have not watched this movie or this is the first time I watched the movie since I watched The Sopranos, and he plays Ralphie, who is one of my favorite characters in seasons three and four of The Sopranos, who is basically, I like to imagine that Cypher, when he was in The Matrix, was just Ralphie from The Sopranos, because <laughs> Ralphie is such a just incredible piece of shit, and Cypher is just so much that character. Um, like, like Joe Pantoliano just plays him the exact same. Um, it's so wonderful. Like if you've watched The Sopranos and you haven't, it, like if you haven't watched those things close in proximity, I highly recommend them together because it is. If you want some good Joe Pantoliano just playing a complete shithead, um, Ralphie and Cipher are very much the same guy in a way that is incredible. Now I'm imagining that The Sopranos is in the world of the Matrix and the ending where you know Tony looks up and the journey yeah. song is playing and everyone's like did he die what happened no what happened is he looks up and who walked through the door was Lawrence Fishburne coming to tell Tony Soprano that he's in the matrix yes and it's yeah the, the next shot after that is actually just him waking up in the birthing pod um yeah and wondering where the gabagool is yes I'm sorry. I have been, for some reason, I think it's because the Mini Saints of Newark movie is out. I'm getting all these Sopranos videos recommended to me, including people love doing supercuts of all the times they say Gabagool on Sopranos. Mm -hmm. And they're, I haven't seen the Sopranos all the way through. And it's very fun to watch all of the scenes where they say Gabagool. Yes. Well, if, if Cypher really gets on your no nerves and you want to see that dude get some comeuppance... Okay. Ralphie gets what's fucking coming to him uh, And I did, after watching The Matrix I did watch like 30 minutes of Sopranos clips Including Ralphie <laughs> getting what's coming to him um, That's pretty good Because Joe Pantoliano is fucking amazing You know, like, Cypher's not in a huge character In this movie, I mean, he's like dead about Two-thirds of the way through it But he makes a very big impact while he's there Yeah, so here's what I wanted to say about the red pill Blue pill thing with Cypher, is that in this original film, I really think that the pill formulation is the exact opposite of what QAnon and people have turned it into, right? Mm -hmm. And you were kind of saying this. But, like, Cypher in the movie becomes the exponent of taking the blue pill. He says, like, he says the line, like, I should have told him to shove that red pill up your ass, right? Yeah. And he is literally preaching ignorance. When he's talking to Hugo Weaving, to Agent Smith in the, in the, er, in the restaurant, where Agent Smith, I love how uncomfortable he looks at that fucking dinner. Mm -hmm. He's just like... What? Why do I need to be here eating this fucking steak? Who gives a shit? I love that. But anyway, he literally opens that conversation saying ignorance is bliss. Cypher is a person who hates the inconvenience of knowing things, of actually being free, and the responsibilities that come with it. He's the one who wants to be in the Matrix. He would actively choose the Matrix and all the things that come with it because it's easy and makes him personally comfortable. The blue pill is what QAnon says the red pill is. It's the lies that keep you comfortable, docile, the lies that tell you you are right and that those trying to tell the truth are wrong. The blue pill is literally choosing ignorance as superior to knowledge because ignorance is malleable. Ignorance can conform to a pre-existing worldview and knowledge is not. Knowledge is inconvenient. Truth is inconvenient. And so when you have idiots and right-wingers using this red pill analogy, they're actually arguing for the blue pill. They're arguing that, that that's what they want, is the world where they can just choose what their knowledge is and conform to this 
you know, I don't have to know things. I can feel things and let that be my worldview. Um, it's, it is like a big open metaphor the Wachowskis have made. It's not surprising to see it co-opted this way. But I also think that that hijacking of the metaphor is kind of there in the text through that antagonist of Cypher. Yeah, and, and I, I like this reading because I do think it captures something of like one of the major appeals of conspiracy theory stuff in general. And like QAnon is just like one of the most like elaborate and frightening ones we've ever had. Um, but conspiracy theories in general are seductive because it gives people the illusion that they are have more control over their life in things than they actually do right so if you believe in a conspiracy of that like um you know we've never landed on the moon and that the government's really controlled by like lizard people and all that kind of shit it means that you are in some heightened level of authority and power over other things and that you have control over what is happening because you know and other people don't and it makes you special and it makes you powerful um and i think kind of one of the things that happens here with Cypher is because when you actually are like opened up to the realm of like possibilities and the like open space of like the truth and of radical political thought, like that is a like, that's not a comfortable place to be in. It's a no. frightening a place to be in where you like have to recognize the extreme lack of control and authority over your own life that you actually have. And Neo and the other characters have to grapple with that idea throughout the whole film, right? That's part of, like, one of the things that the Oracle, I think, represents in the, like, talking about fate and things like that is that when you open yourself up to the radical bigger picture of the ways that, like, systems manipulate and control people, you have to then start opening yourself up to questions about, like, how much free will and authority and control do you actually have over your own life? How and where can you exert what amount of control you have? Um, and those kinds of questions. That's a frightening, like, scary place to be in. And it's the opposite of what conspiracy theories do. Conspiracy theories shut down possibility spaces. They shut down that frightening uncertainty by giving you an easy, convenient answer, no matter how absurd it might be. And so, yes, yeah, so Cypher chooses or wants to choose to return to this world where the wool is pulled over his eyes. But if he forgets all that shit, it doesn't matter because he will be by becoming reintegrated to the system. He re assumes this feeling of control over this life that he has um, rather than currently being in this position where he realizes I don't have control. Like I am at the whims of the machines. I am at the whims of like the world around me and my relationships with the members on this crew. Like I can't just have, you know, a sexual relationship with Trinity because she's like a separate person that has her own authority and her own rights and her own ability to agency to, to sort of like decide what she wants to do. And I can't do anything about those things. Um, and he rejects that. So yes, it very much is, I think, a good reading that Cypher is akin to the alt-right and other people like that who maybe think they're taking the red pill or want to believe that they're taking the red pill but really are just like taking a double dose of the fucking blue pill i just think one of the most like potent examples of this in the real world happened on twitter a couple years ago this was 2020 so just last year i guess when elon musk that piece of shit got on twitter and just tweeted out take the red pill everyone and Ivanka Trump replied, taken, with like a big exclamation point. 
And then Lana Wachowski, or uh, excuse me, Lily Wachowski got on Twitter and went, fuck both of you. <laughs> um, and like, that's so perfect. You've got these two immensely, inordinately powerful, like privileged, piece of shit human beings who just make life worse for people, right? Yes. Like, Tesla just had, what was it, like a $150 million settlement for just abject racism at their workplaces. Yeah. Where I don't know if you read about this, where like black people at their workplaces are just routinely called the N-word and there's like no accountability for it. And so they had to pay $150 million and all the other bad stuff Elon Musk does. And then Ivanka Trump, who is, you know, fucking Hitler Jr. over here, yeah. um, you know, coming out and saying, yeah, let's take it, take the red pill. And I just, I really like, I respect the absolute hell out of Lily Wachowski going on Twitter and just telling them both to go fuck themselves because they should. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about some of these other characters. We've we've hit a lot of them. I want to hit the let's hit the other two pieces of our. I was going to say Trinity, but that I, I can't say that because yeah. one of the characters is named Trinity. One of our our triad here, Morpheus, Sean. We already talked about him a little bit, but yes, Lawrence Fishburne, one of my absolute favorite actors alive today. I love Lawrence Fishburne. Mm-hmm. I've loved him in everything I've ever seen him in, and you know the dialogue that they give Morpheus to read is so heady. On one level, it is just mountains of formal exposition he's being given to say, right? And I really do think if you had an actor even 1% less capable of making that compelling and charismatic and not just, as you say, Sean, giving it with the affect of a preacher, but the affect of someone who believes to their core what they are saying and is asking this of you not out of any malice but out of wanting you to see the beauty of what they see, the way, like, I think a really great, like, preacher or something would do. Um, it is a magnificent, magnificent performance. And I love him in this movie so much. I, there's no, there's no question why Keanu Reeves would want to go die for that man at the end huh. of the movie. Because I would, too. Yeah, no, it's just, it's, it's a unbelievably iconic performance for a reason because he just he so fully embodies this this character that you want to follow like you want to believe in what morpheus believes in um and, and it turns in he believes in you right so he believes in, yeah. in the me that believes in you the old gurren anime meme that's what morpheus is um it's yeah like i don't even know like what to say about it it's just like it's fucking lawrence fishburne like look at this dude listen to what he says it's fucking amazing it is like I said, we're lucky he did not start a cult because yes. man, if they if Scientology had Lawrence Fishburne and not Tom Cruise, ah oh, fuck, L.A. would be gone. Yeah. They just all of them. Um, no, it is, it is a great character, and I and I do think one of the I think he has really good stuff to do in the sequels. He is never as quite as big a presence in the movies again as he is here, which makes sense for the kind of character he yeah. is. The same way like. Obi-Wan Kenobi, even if he didn't die in Star Wars 4, just couldn't be as big in 5 and 6 because he is the the teacher that they kind of have to grow beyond. But he continues to be great, and I just, you know... Yeah, I don't know what else to say. I think he has such amazing chemistry with Keanu Reeves. They are mm-hmm. so good together. It's one of the reasons I love that they brought him in into John Wick, because in those scenes you see it as well. That Lawrence Fishburne is... Can, can be this big ham, he can chew the scenery, he can be, he can go big and like, you just can't take your eyes off him. And Keanu Reeves is kind of a perfect counterpoint for that. Um, <clears throat> I think, you know, obviously there is the big sparring scene on the Nebuchadnezzar when they are in the like Kung Fu dojo. Yeah. 
And that scene is phenomenal and it is great. And I just love how, you know, the other thing about Lawrence Fishburne here is he's kind of a goof with a twinkle in his eye. You know, like when he does the famous move of of doing his big hand movement and then going to Neo, you know, doing the like, come here, the, yeah. the little like palm move, which Neo, of course, repeats at the end of the movie. The look on Lawrence Fishburne's eye there is so fun. He is like, he's having fun in this scene. Um, and I love that. And I love how he's just fucking with Neo. I love the whole scene where, you know, Neo's like, he says like, why did I beat you? And Neo's like, you're too fast. And he leans over and says, you think this has anything to do with my body in here? Oh man, he's he's the greatest teacher yeah. ever. Yeah, there's something about like we we talked. I don't remember the context in which it came out up in, but like several podcasts ago, we we talked a little bit about um, Orson Welles and the Third Man. He brought up like this shot in which Orson Welles is introduced, where he gives this little smirk and there's a twinkle uh-huh. in his eye. Like Lawrence Fishburne has so much of that energy in this movie. So I so said that yes. like if they may had made this movie th- like 40 years earlier, you would cast Orson Welles as the Morpheus role because they have a very <laughs> similar like quality to to that like that just like the firmness of the character and the belief but also there's like a humanity underneath all of that that both of those actors are so good at at portraying um and 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 for me with morpheus in this movie i think my favorite moment with the character isn't even one of his big speeches or anything i love so much the moment when they're trying to escape from the agents and everything this is when morpheus gets captured and he looks down and he's like it's like oh it's and then morpheus just looks up and goes ah and bursts through the wall like with his hands held up high like again that very like man of a man of his faith kind of thing and just shoots through the wall and tackles the, the fucking agent it is like perfect it's amazing it's 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 goofy um, in the perfect way of like you just believe that this character would do this and that this is like his leap of faith that he has to make and so he's doing it as like an almost like religious gesture um, and and Lawrence Fishburne just plays that moment that I think is like a weird hard moment to play at just the like scientifically perfect register. The other one for me that is like the get on your feet and cheer moment of this movie is at the end mm-hmm. when they're in the helicopter and they've shot all the agents and he raises his head and bursts through his handcuffs and then runs out and has to make a literal leap of faith yes. and Neo has to make a leap in, in and they come together and they fucking hug as the building explodes and it's beautiful. Um, just, you know, you want those men to hug. And um, it's great. It's just... Because it is also, like, it's a performance of really great physicality. Like, you talk yeah. about the voice, but, like, his entire physical presence in the scenes where he's giving speeches, in the scenes where he's sitting with his cool leather coat, but also, like, the fight scenes, it's... I assume Lawrence Fishburne is, like, doubled more than Keanu Reeves or something, the same way I do for Hugo Weaving, because neither of those guys are quite as, like, physical as a Keanu Reeves. But you still totally buy the physicality that they've given to this character. And there's plenty of shots where it very clearly is Lawrence Fishburne and he's just great. Um, And just overall, like that is such a fully embodied character at every level. Um, It's, it's why he's so iconic and the motherfucker wears sunglasses everywhere because these people have watched a lot of anime and they know it is very cool when you have cool self-assured characters walk into a dark room with sunglasses on. It, like must have been for Lawrence Fishburne a massive pain in the ass to have to do all this <laughs> shit with these little glasses that only stick on by the nose piece and don't have anything to go over your ears. They must have fallen off 
all the time. Because in anime, you can have a character just wear sunglasses like that all the time. It doesn't matter because you're just drawing them on. When you're an actual human being, you have to be like, did, did they just like fucking glue them to his fucking face sometimes? <laughs> it's like some of the shit he does while he's still wearing sunglasses is uh, amazing to me. Well, you know, the thing you need to realize, Sean, is there are no sunglasses. Exactly. <laughs> it's the Matrix. He can just keep them on with the power of his own belief. All right. Final character we haven't talked about from, like, the, the main group of characters here is Carrie Ann Moss as Trinity, um, who probably has the least to do of, of these characters we're talking about, but is still, like, so crucial to the movie, obviously. Um, and particularly in the third act, I think, breaks out as, as someone very cool. Of course, she's also the first character who does anything in the movie. Mm -hmm. um, and Carrie Ann Moss is just... I think very much in that kind of Keanu Reeves space of like she can sell physicality in a really great way. Uh, she looks very cool in leather and sunglasses um, and just, yeah, has a very like iconicity about her in this movie in particular that is really good. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely she doesn't have as much to do as a lot of the other characters, but it is, I think, like the physicality of the performance is what stands out to me of like you yeah. just you just fully believe um, like the amount of like power and authority that she has both like on the ship in the real world and then also within the matrix um i do i love the moment where they're going to go save morpheus and Neo's like no you have to stay behind she's like fuck you like what like <laughs> i've i've been doing this forever like you just came out a week ago fuck off like i'm yeah. like i'm the one who should be telling you to stay here asshole and then she goes in with them um it's very good and they tear shit up. I mean, yeah. there's just there's not many more cool images in Hollywood cinema than Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss walking into a fucking armed building together in their you know long trench coats and sunglasses. It's uh it's pretty good. They make a yeah. good team. Yeah. Their chemistry, you know, they have a very like low key chemistry. It's not smoldering, but I really buy it. Like yeah. I like it. I think it works 100%. It's and you know the the big moment Carrie Ann Moss as an actor has to sell in the movie is when Neo in the Matrix is shot by Smith, and she leans over and says, "You know this, you can't be dead because the Oracle said I would fall in love with the one, and I've fallen in love with you, so you have to be him." And then she gives him a kiss, and it works one hundred percent for me. Yeah, and I also just again the Wachowskis are weird and eclectic, and there's no one else who would do. All of this like heady philosophy in their movie, all of these anime and kung fu references, but also one of the key moments of their movie is literally someone kissing someone back to life. Like yes. that's the Wachowskis kind of in a in a in a in a blender to me, is is just all of that, and that one of the key moments will also be that love is real, goddammit, and it means something, and it gives people life, and they believe that too, and it's in there, and I think it's actually a really essential kind of part of the blend of what The Matrix is about, because so much of the second half of this movie is about asserting humanity, and, you know, that, that Neo and Trinity decide to do this objectively crazy thing in going to save Morpheus. It's not a choice a machine would ever make, but they do it, and of course the flip side of that is also that sense of love and it's really important that it's there yeah i agree that it's it's not like it's like the best love story ever told on film or something but it doesn't need to be it, it is it is an important part of the film it's not the kind of thing we saw in like when we discuss some of the batman movies where some of those movies just kind of throw in a love interest because they have to here it feels like you need to show that part of like breaking free of the matrix is like being able to find 
real human connection because that's one of the things that like is striking about neo's life in that first 30 minute stretch when he's still stuck in the matrix is that he is alone right his only interactions with people are these like you know you know drugged out weirdos you buy some sort of like hacked program from him <laughs> um yeah. uh and then he meets trinity and there's some sort of weird connection there at that party and then it's his boss in the dude who's cleaning the fucking windows but there but he has no like relationships he's totally isolated um and so him and trinity having this like real powerful human emotional connection is like a, a fundamental part of what the movie's doing and then it also is like very necessary obviously for like the sequels will continue to build on develop that relationship and what it means so it's very important it will continue to be important in the the stories ahead honestly and i think it's something the sequels make hay out of because that ex exact idea you're saying like that is what all the stuff in zion and reloaded is yeah. really literally about and i think it's beautiful and one of the things they do in the sequels and we'll talk about this when we get there that i really like is neo and trinity just have this relationship that reads to me as like intensely real like an actual mm -hmm. like human couple you might go out and see in the world and it's not that every moment of their life is like this heightened super like sexual and passionate like end of the world romance they just feel like partners in those mm -hmm. second and third movies and i really like that um and it's it's a low-key aspect in a that honestly helps ground a movie that is also fucking crazy you know yes. and has a bunch of wire foo and shit all right um you know what why don't we talk about the wire foo let's take a break from characters for a second yeah and talk about the incredible fucking fight choreography in this movie which was choreographed by I need to look up the name of the person. It's the uh, it's Yuan Wu Ping, yes. who is the Chinese martial arts choreographer um, who has done a bajillion things. I mean, I'm looking like just if you look at the very top of his Wikipedia page, he has awards for Once Upon a Time in Time in China Two, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Kung Fu Hustle, and Fearless. Yeah, this guy knows what he's doing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the things that's fascinating about um, the action in the matrix is that like its influences are obvious right like it's yes. again for the gun stuff it's super john woo when we get to the lobby scene like that is just a john woo gunfight scene um and then with the kung fu stuff it's you know it's clearly pulling from this like wuxia you know wire foo type stuff right um very mm -hmm. heightened kung fu but it's also not like it's not crouching tiger hidden dragon it's not full wuxia um but it's also it's definitely not you know, that other vein of, like, Jackie Chan or, like, what comes from, like, the Bruce Lee school of Hong Kong action that's much more grounded in actual martial arts. Like, the stuff that these people are doing is very obviously not actual martial arts, right? Like, actual martial arts does not involve doing, a, jumping super high up in the air and doing, like, a bicycle kick. You can't jump up and kick someone multiple times. You can't generate any power from that. Um, it would be a useless, pointless thing to do in an actual fight. So here, it's not really grounded in real martial arts. But it's also not the fully fantastical. We're jumping on like you know treetops and you know like jumping throughout the forest and clashing with the swords and stuff, which is like the super fantastical wuxia stuff. And so I think that Matrix ends up coming up with a really unique blend of all those things. Is that there's just no other martial artsy kung fu action scenes in anything else that I think is quite like what the Matrix does. Like it's still watching that dojo scene between neo and morpheus 
just feels utterly unique to me. Like, it just feels like... Because the other part of the equation is that it still has some, like, of, like, the Hollywoodness in there, right? It still has a certain amount of, like, an American Hollywood sensibility to some of the way it handles some of that action. So it's like all of that blend creates something that is just, like, really unique and it's exciting and it's fun. It's very dance-like in how it's choreographed, which is some of the wuxia elements, um, but it is a little bit more grounded with some of, like, the more real martial artsy stuff. It's just really, really fantastically uniquely done. It is. So I'm reading about it right now, and it's exactly what you're saying, because the Wachowskis scheduled four full months of training before shooting started. This is the other reason why you wouldn't really get this in a movie now, is pre-production times have just been fucking slashed in movies mm -hmm. lately. Um, and so they had a full four months for Yuan Wu-Ping to work with these actors, and he basically realized, okay, I'm not in Hong Kong. I'm not working with like a Jackie Chan or Jet Li or someone who like has trained their whole life for this kind of thing. He's working with actors. So he tried to develop a unique style for every character built on something that was there in like their performance or their physicality. And so all of that is what it comes out of. Like I love like they say like Fishburne's resilience, Weaving's precision, Keanu Reeves's diligence, Moss her deftness and lightness. That's just like really great choreography is mm -hmm. that he kind of looks at these actors and, and what they're giving as performers also and says, what can we kind of make out of that? And then they did do most of the stunts. It's a lot of training and it's a lot of like, um, I'm sure there is stunt doubling here, but like um, Carrie Ann Moss did do most of the wire stunts herself, all of that kind of stuff. Um, Keanu Reeves had a two-level fusion of his cervical neck spine yes. from a herniated disc at the start of this movie. It was not because of The Matrix. It was uh -huh. a pre-existing condition. Um, but he was still recovering during pre-production. And so uh, Yuen um, made him move, work more on punches and lighter moves, which is why in this first movie, Neo doesn't do many kicks, is because that was the hardest thing to do with his neck condition. Mm -hmm. um, the one big kick Neo does in this movie is in the big dojo scene. He does that big flying triple kick on yeah. Morpheus, and that was the hardest thing for him to do, because at first he just physically couldn't do it. They delayed shooting the scene, and then he eventually got it in three takes, which I think is a fucking cool story. Um, yeah, Keanu Reeves is Keanu Reeves was fucking diligent. He was uh, working even on his days off. He made them train him. So, which is totally true. It seems like of Keanu Reeves today, also. Yeah, um, and and it's super important. Like we talked about this when we talked about Shang Chi. But if you don't have the actor being able to do a significant amount of like that action, you can't yeah. shoot action the way they do because. No. Because one part of it is like the chore the choreography is really well done and it's based in character and it's got this very unique, interesting style. But another part of it is that like it's filmed so elegantly. Um it's you are always aware of what's happening. The movements are very crisp and clear. The like the the story of the choreography and the kind of the dance of the fight is told through camera shots and edits and um things like that. And the cameras but the, and the camera's not static either. It's also very dynamic in how it shoots, um, and it's a really engaging and engaged um, manner of filming action scenes. But it can only work if you're having your actual actors there, but especially in 1999, where you can't really do digital doubles other than for like a scene that's like you know shot in a crazy wide where you can barely see them. Um, and so that commitment to doing the action is the only way you can do this kind of big crazy kung fu stuff if you're not doing if you're not having the actors do it you just can't do those scenes absolutely 
Now, that's not to say there aren't stunt doubles, because one of the great legacies of The Matrix is that Chad Stahelski, who we now know is the director of all three John Wick movies, was Keanu's stunt double on The Matrix, where, I'm reading right now, in the scene where Neo slams Smith up into the ceiling on the train, Uh Chad Stahelski broke his ribs, knees, and dislocated a shoulder. (laughs) Jesus. Oh my god. You know, that's, but this, that guy's a fucking pro. That's, that's how, those are the scars you need to direct John Wick, I think. Yeah. Um, he, he has fucking lived it. That's crazy, yeah. Uh, another stuntman was injured by a hydraulic puller during a shot in which Neo was slammed into a booth. Yeah, so that, not that many injuries. Honestly, when you're looking at, like, the history of these things, no one had a Jackie Chan style, fuck, I broke my, my head open and I almost died in an outtake that is in the movie. Um, but, you know. Yeah. People got hurt. So yeah, um, oh, here's this is not connected to any of the choreography, but while I'm reading about the production, um, I suspected this was the case, but the final thing they shot for the movie was all the stuff in the pod because they had to have Keanu shave his whole body, mm-hmm. so you're going to do that last. So the last thing they filmed in principal photography on The Matrix was him getting dropped into the sewers, um, nice. which seems like a kind of funny ending for all the cool things Keanu Reeves gets to do in this movie. The ending was, and now we're going to drop you through a big hole into, uh, into water. Yeah. Like, that kind of thing of where, you know, they have to save those shots for last because the dude has to shave his whole head and stuff like that. I always like to think there has to be some movie out there somewhere that just fucked it up and they thought that they had everything (laughs) and then they had the actors like, okay, we finally did it. Now shave your entire head and your beard off um, and all this shit. And then, like, an assistant director comes up and is like, but sir, we didn't shoot this whole sequence. We're going to do that next week. It's like, fuck, 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 fuck. Like, that has to have happened at least once on a movie, right? I think the closest is the reverse with uh, Henry Cavill on Justice yes. League, where they thought they were done. He gets this cool mustache for Mission Impossible. Then they need reshoots, but he can't shave it. So they're in CGI hell land. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Anyway, um, anyway, back yeah, to back so. to the fight scenes. Another thing I want to point out for the the martial arts stuff is the Matrix has like such distinctive sound work that you can tell yes. that you are watching a Matrix kung fu scene, even if you had the TV turned off and you just had the sound on, because the like specific like the punch sound yes. effects and the wishes. Um, are also very distinctive. They're they're not quite like how Hollywood fist fights have sound effects. They're not quite like kung fu movie sound effects. It's a, another thing that is like very uniquely Matrix, and you can tell because when you play Into the Matrix or Path of Neo, um, as I did, I played like ten minutes of those games just to make sure that they the discs worked. You're like, oh yeah, they just got this one sound effect from the movie, and they just use it for every single punch in this game. Um, whereas the because they're great. It, it yeah. feels like you got, like, the meatiness of the Ben Burt punch from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh-huh. And you combined it with, like, the speed and the, like, whooshing of, like, a kung fu wuxia scene. Yeah. And it's a, oh, man, it's a match made in heaven. It's so beautiful. Those punches sound so good. Yeah. It's it's just the whole soundscape of, of the film is incredibly well done. I particularly like the sound effects for the punches and the wishes in the, the kung fu scenes are yeah. just perfect. Okay, and uh, we'll table this for now because we're going to come back. I, I just want to do a full breakdown of the third act in a little bit here because I think The Matrix has maybe the best third act we've talked about since Fellowship of the Ring. Uh-huh. Um, the third act of The Matrix is fucking phenomenal. But let's put that on the table for a second and clean up anything else in this stretch of the movie um, because you have all the stuff on the Nebuchadnezzar um, and then you have them going to meet the Oracle. 
um, which is also just obviously a great and iconic scene. Um, the actress who plays uh, the Oracle, Gloria Foster, I think is just so good. Um, I, I love her. And I haven't seen like other stuff in her career, and I feel kind of bad for that. Um, I think she did a lot of theater, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, yeah, it looks like. Um, but she is so good in these movies. And I think the scene where Neo goes and meets the Oracle... One of the things I just love about that scene, and especially watching it like knowing the movie very well, is that that whole scene is her fucking with him. Yes. And it's, but it's her fucking with him with a very clear intention. She's not actually like telling him anything. She doesn't give him any revelations. There's the whole thing with the vase. There's the whole thing where she's looking at his hands, which is just pure misdirect. And you can just, the way the actress plays that is so funny it's so clearly the oracle just having fun with this stupid kid who's come into her room but also like what she lays out there is she's she gently pushes him towards de-emphasizing the anxiety about the one and then emphasizing how much morpheus cares for him so that she tees him up where that in the end without having ever told him he's the one she ensures that he will do the things that will lead him to actually realize what he is and it's like it's a very like you know kung fu master yoda in star wars drunken master you know master roshi even kind of thing of like kind of knowledge by misdirect yes but it's such a great like kind of homey version of it and i've always loved it and i think keanu reeves always has such great uh, chemistry with the oracle in those scenes they're they're so fun together uh, gloria foster yeah 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 absolutely it's 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 perfectly played it's a perfectly written character and it continues like you know some of what that morpheus speech near the beginning of the movie says of like you you can't be just told you're the one or like this is your fate or whatever like those are things that you have to discover and experience and actualize yourself or it doesn't mean anything like you can't just be told what the matrix is it's something you have to experience to understand um and i and that's part of what she's doing there is saying is like you have to get your head out of all that stuff like you have to be in the moment you have to just be yourself and if you're the one or whatever the fuck that even means that will happen but it's like you need to just walk your path and and you got to live your best your best life yeah you know we'll get into this when we talk about reloaded and revolutions but i think this series has a really interesting relationship with the chosen one narrative um, because what it ultimately does with it, I, I guess spoilers if you're listening to this and haven't seen Matrix Reloaded, but Matrix Reloaded does just just tell you what the one is. It gives you a really technical, in-depth explanation in like the code of the Matrix, what has happened. And the whole point is that it doesn't really matter. Yeah, And that is still there, seeded kind of from this movie. I think it's a really interesting presentation of the whole one narrative where uh, it, it, and it very much comes from you know pick your kung fu movie pick your anime there's a lot of like things that they are pulling from here um but it's just a very well done version of that story where prophecy is not as important as the actual choices that are made and what the oracle does is give people the tools to make the choices they need to make yes yeah it's very well done and uh gloria foster rest in peace she she dies between um reloaded and revolutions so sh she's not in the third movie but man love 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 her in this and uh i did see a very funny tweet the other day that gets the order of the scene wrong because she doesn't actually give neo the cookies until the end of the scene but the joke in the in the tweet was man they wrote this computer character perfectly because she won't let neo get any information without making him take a cookie <laughs> and i thought that was very funny yes 
but anyway, um, I like the Oracle. I like the kid with the spoon. There is no spoon is all is one of the like most oft parodied moments in this mm-hmm. movie. I but I still like when I watch it today. I think it's a very like engaging little scene. It it gets it's one of the areas of this movie that gets maybe a little uncomfortable or uncomfortably orientalist with like the kid in like the white gi with the shaved mm-hmm. head doing this. Um, but I I still think it's a good little scene. Yeah, I particularly like the shot of like neo bending his head to the left and the camera following his perspective and the spoon appears to bend with the camera as it pivots um that's like a very good shot very very good shot absolutely all right so one of the things i'm always startled by when i watch the matrix is that it's actually a very simple movie in its structure Mm -hmm. um as big as the world building is as much happens in it it's really very simple which is neo wakes up from the matrix he learns some stuff and trains on the Nebuchadnezzar. And then they go into the Matrix to meet the Oracle. And the rest of the movie is on that. The rest of the movie is that like day in their life when they do all this stuff with the Oracle. Cypher betrays them. They have to get out. Most of the crew dies. Um, this movie has a very high body count among its lead characters. Um, and then it's going back in to save Morpheus. And it is like very direct on that level. In the same way like a Star Wars is or something. When you go back and watch Star Wars, for as big as the world it suggests is, it's really quite simple in what happens to Luke Skywalker in that movie. You know, mm-hmm. And honestly, The Matrix is even more pared down than that. Because the Star Wars at least has like these sort of two big different episodes with the Death Star in the Death Star and then the destruction of the Death Star. And this is almost a little more like just blended where the midpoint of this movie is jacking into the Matrix to see the Oracle and then that is the rest of the movie, basically. Yeah, I mean, the the Star Wars would be more like if like the Matrix had a bigger gap between Neo and Trinity coming out of that, right. the Matrix then and then going back in if there was more that happened there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes. Yeah, I mean, overall, I do think it's... And I think a lot of it is more the like taking elements of the hero's journey thing but i am struck by how much the matrix is structured very very similar to the original star wars film um like there's a lot of beats that structurally are pretty pretty similar yeah absolutely um but i do think that as good as the first two acts of this movie are when they get back on the nebuchadnezzar and neo decides he's gonna jack in and go see morpheus i think the movie just kicks up to a whole other level the last act of this movie is unbelievably good it is also one of the best 4k demo reels you'll ever see because Uh the last act of this movie in 4k with all of like the exploding shrapnel and the walls and the water and all of the uh, high frame rate photography well it's presented in 24 but the high speed photography for slow motion and all of the stuff outdoors it is just eye candy after eye candy after eye candy an amazing assemblage of action scenes the just sheer kineticism of it it is on another level. It is fucking possessed filmmaking. It is like, it is up there with like Raiders of the Lost Ark and Mad Max Fury Road. Just this filmmaking that's just like, you just get a sense of like mad men and women possessed making these movies, you know? Yeah, it's, yeah, it is, it is utterly incredible. Like, yeah, from that moment they jack in. Um, part of it is that there's so many good little like setups that pay off like throughout the whole third act so like them going back to that like loading program or whatever and then it's like we're gonna need guns lots of guns and then the whole all the gun racks coming in and all that shit 
Um, that whole, just everything, everything in, in the whole third act is incredible. Um, but I think my favorite moment is this is probably always going to be the moment where they come into the like lobby of the building and they're going up to the metal detector and the guy's like, so can you remove any like metal items you have on your person? And Neo opens up his coat and he's just covered in pistols, basically. And the guy goes, holy shit. Uh, and then everyone just gets shot the fuck up. Uh, that is just an amazing, amazing little, little bit there. Yes. Well, we'll talk about the lobby scene in a second because it's so rightfully iconic. I did want to connect it to one other idea in the movie we didn't talk about. There's that scene in the second act where they're on the Nebuchadnezzar and they bring him into the the, the agent program where Morpheus is telling Neo about agents mm-hmm. and why you like cannot see innocent people in this program. And he has this speech where he says, the Matrix is a system, Neo. That system is our enemy. But when you're inside, you look around. What do you see? Businessmen, teachers, lawyers, carpenters, the very minds of the people we are trying to save. But until we do, these people are still a part of that system and that makes them our enemy. You have to understand most of these people are not ready to be unplugged. And many of them are so inured, so hopelessly dependent on the system that they will fight to protect it. Good God, that is a radical idea in yes. a Hollywood movie. Yes, yes. That Morpheus is really is just out saying, there. You, you gotta kill some fucking people is basically yeah. this is what he's saying. Well, and it's it's this whole idea of, I mean, this very much I feel like connects to the issues in American politics today of people fighting against their own interest for a status quo that they have been mindlessly taught to accept through mm-hmm. brainwashing. But also like, yeah, that idea of it's, I mean, it's like a pseudo like terrorist argument at a certain point of like, you know, the system is the enemy and you can't really worry about the individuals in the system while you're tearing it down. Um, and so there is just like mass bloodshed of theoretically innocent people who are not presented that way because they are part of the system. That is like extremely like Marxist, you know, thinking and thought structures put into this action movie. And I think it's really interesting. And it's like not surprising to me that the first thing the Wachowskis did after Matrix was V for Vendetta. Yeah, I feel like the only way that they get away with just murdering dozens of cops in the third act of this movie is by like the thin veil of like but it's all in the matrix even though it's very clear if you kill these people in the matrix they're just dead like they're going to be dead and then their dead bodies are going to be liquefied and used to nourish all the other human batteries in the the farm so like you're just killing all these people and i just like the idea that like if you would you just never be able to get away with this you would just never be able to get away with like no we're just like killing a bunch of like normal cops like that's it we're just walking to a building and shooting a bunch of cops which is great um but most or you people would, would not I mean, accept at the, it at the furthest line you can do something like heat where it's people who are like established as bad in the narrative and then die at the end of the movie well right? yes like, yeah yeah if they're yeah. like villains or like bad guys yeah. then obviously they get to kill the cops because that just makes the cops the good guys uh but this is the cops are just yeah. the bad guys and you just kill them it's uh, someone said this uh, on Twitter there, and I thought it was funny. Like, this is the most fuck the police movie ever because yeah. they really fuck the police. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's okay. basically true. Like, it's just they, yeah. the police are just evil, and you just kill them because fuck it. <laughs> okay, so the big scene in the lobby, which I always one of my favorite production details from the Matrix, is that they had to build two of these sets. Because there was no physical way to reset after how much <laughs> yes. they destroyed it. 
Um, and I don't know if they ever used the second. I think they, I don't remember the exact story, but I think they got it in, in like, it wasn't all obviously one take, but in the one run through they did of the whole scene. But they had to build the set twice because there's just, after you demolish it the way they demolish it, you cannot reset that set. Yes. Well, and it, it sorry. Well, yes, yeah. Because, I mean, what this is is just like, it's the thing that Hollywood movies have never understood, which is that nobody has ever made a gunfight scene that is one-tenth as good as the worst gunfight scene that John Woo has ever shot. So, like, (laughs) if you're going to do gunfight action scenes in a movie, you should just, like, the best you can hope for is a pale imitation of John Woo. Like, that's the peak that anyone who's not John Woo can even film. (laughs) So it's like, like, the Wachowskis just saying, well, let's just do a John Woo gunfight scene is like, that's, you have set yourself on the course for fucking success already by picking that option. Because it's like, you again, you watch any John Woo movie, even ones that don't have particular, that aren't even particularly good, and it's still the gunfights are better than any other gunfights in any other movies ever. Like, and none of them are even close. And the main thing is that you that they understand that John Woo gets is that it's about like the impact of the bullets, and it's not that they need to be realistic; it needs to be unrealistic, and how much everything just blows up and like particles and dust and little chunks of stone and plants and shit just get kicked up into the air and it's this like frenetic ballet of debris and people jumping through the air in the intercutting of slow motion footage and like normal speed footage and the sound effects of the bullets and it's about the like impact of every single shot being as maximal as possible is what makes it so satisfying and it's just it's it's just such a delight to watch a movie that understands how to do a good gunfight because I feel like so many movies just don't and this one absolutely does. Oh yeah, because it is. Yeah, it's like crank the John Woo to eleven. It's everything but the doves, and uh, we're just gonna destroy this fucking lobby. We're gonna have some sick ass slow mo. It looks real good in 4K. If you want to show oh, yeah. off like the actual resolution side of 4K with all of that exploding dust and debris and all of that, oh man! And the music, mwah, it's perfect. It's just a good scene. Yes, yes. This is where the the song is uh, "Spy Break" by a band called Propeller Heads. But this is the song that they play here. That then this song is just used. The, either this song or or like music that is meant to sound like this is just used in every video game trailer forever um, until like two thousand seven or so. And this is also where you realize. Would you at least the first level of Enter the Matrix just plays? I don't think it's this exact song, but it's a song that is basically the same that thing, <laughs> and it's just that on a loop for like an entire level of a video game. So I'm very much looking forward to playing Enter the Matrix. See, did they yes. get a different kind of music for any of the other levels? Because it works perfect for one five minute scene in a movie it maybe gets a little bit obnoxious when it's just playing on a loop through an entire level and then every five minutes it goes it does the big matrix noise and it goes it just keeps doing that for a while (laughs) it's so good man i i do love that we can have all these heady philosophical conversations about the matrix but also just it just cuts loose here it just gives it to you it's so good it's it's the specific blend that makes this so special yeah should we talk about Agent Smith stuff here? Because you talked about how much you love 
everything he has in this stretch of the movie. Yeah, I think we, we kind of talked about it when we hit just how good yeah. he is here. But yeah, I mean, it's okay. just these scenes. I think this is some of the stuff that I just forgot was in the movie entirely. Um, I think I maybe thought some of this was maybe in like one of the, in, in Reloaded or something. His speeches about like humans and how he hates them and him waxing philosophical about how humans are like a virus and all that. It's just very... It's it's a thing where you know it makes me realize how far I've come in life that I hear Agent Smith here and I'm like you know he's got some good points like I kind <laughs> of agree like humans are like a plague and you know maybe humanity is a mistake it's like I you know I'm a part of me is kind of on Agent Smith's side that like the machines seem to have figured some shit out and the humans do kind of suck and you know I love the detail of that him saying that the first iteration of the matrix was the machines trying to give humans a perfect world but it didn't work because nobody believed it and everyone was like able to understand that at some point they're living in some sort of dream or fabric fabricated reality and the conclusion that smith comes to is that humans as a living creature need misery and without some degree of misery they just don't believe in the reality they exist in which i think is like a really like it is something that I kind of resonate with. I think like like people will f- need to find some amount of like discomfort or negative experience, no matter the circumstances they live in, because you can't, as a human, ever be satisfied. Like no living creature can ever be satisfied, because to be fully satisfied is to die. We are designed to continue to process energy and then like consume other forms of matter and convert it to energy continues to survive. And if we stop doing that, we die. So it's like. We are designed as living creatures to constantly consume things. Um, And so you can't ever be satisfied because for you to continue to consume, you need to be put into a state of dissatisfaction. So I think there's something very compelling to me about his whole speech of like, of the idea of this machine looking at humans and being like, God, you guys are just all kinds of fucked up. It's like, no matter what we do, you're never happy. Like you're never just like, we can't make you content. So the best thing we can do is just say like, the 90s are fine and we just put you in the fucking 1990s and let you go about your shitty little pointless human lives forever while meanwhile we just turned you into energy which is not a particularly like efficient way of um generating energy for machines but it is a very poetically uh, powerful one yeah hugo weaving has three speeches in this stretch he has he starts with the one about humans are a virus He has the one about the first Matrix was a perfect utopia and then the one about the smell and like, you know, wanting to get out of here and they all grow on each other. And I'm looking at, this is an IMDb quotes page where I'm just looking at all of these big chunks of text. These are huge speeches. Uh Like formatted in a screenplay, these would be like multiple pages long. No screenwriting manual would ever tell you to do this, especially at the height of your action climax to keep pausing for Hugo Weaving to just monologue for multiple minutes on end. And yet it works because it is Hugo Weaving and because it is part of this like kind of like dyad they're doing philosophically in the movie where Agent Smith is almost like, you know, I'm, I'm in film theory, you know, part of film theory is also studying all these political theories and the 19th, the 20th century is this series of failed revolutions, right? Mm-hmm. Of all these like, we're going to, you know, first communism is going to do it and we're going to win and oh, fuck, no one wants it. And then like over and over again, you know, then there's all the like third world uprisings and all of this stuff and it never really works. And I feel like Agent Smith is like this nth degree other side of like 
over and over again you guys had the chance to make your lives better and you fucking didn't and so now i'm on this edge of just i want you all to die and i want to get out of here and be away from these humans and their petty concerns you know like almost dr manhattan-esque at a certain point and it is just he is like this like other like nihilistic side that i love and also giving this is something that the sequels will do even more with but i i I do love this idea of the machines having their own culture and wants and desires that have evolved separate from the humans and in fact not just separate from the humans but in like opposition to their whole world reloaded and revolutions do a ton with this and i think it's really fun and interesting um but smith is like the start of it here with this like cascading series of speeches that ends with his i have to get out of here and i fucking love that scene he's like right up on Lawrence fishburne you have on the soundtrack those big like drum beats like from a drum machine that are just super mechanical and harsh coming up and it is it's scary like he sends a chill down your spine i've seen that scene a dozen times and it always does it for me yeah it, it's just deeply evocative i think both in the on like a science fiction way it's just fascinating to get like a glimpse into the, the machine's way of thinking and perceiving that they are more like human than you would think um like through agent smith's like the lens of agent smith and it's just interesting to imagine that it's like you know if like neo is not you know defined by the form he takes within the matrix like neither like what is agent smith really right he doesn't have right. a human body he goes back to is he one of those sentinels like when in, in just in this movie you don't get any kind of those answers to those questions but it's just like the nature of him as an entity is so kind of fascinating to ponder but i also think like if you look at some of the like you know there's like a lot of like religious elements throughout the matrix i think one way you can look at and read religious like sort of elements into it is looking at um there's almost like two competing religions the religion of the machines and the religion of um like morpheus in the one and all of that and there's something i like of the like agent smith being this kind of angel-esque character right that he is this kind of higher being that is being forced to the ground right into being on like the same plane as these dirty fucking humans that are these like sullied sinful creatures and that he is being punished like it's all it's like a very like lucifer-esque kind of thing in some ways um and the fact that he has to to be here with us is so insulting to him um it's got a very kind of like i think potent judeo-christian kind of edge to the way the character is portrayed and written um as well as like the more like sci-fi way you can take it with the AI stuff. Um, yeah, it's cool, cool shit. Like, and it's, and we'll get a lot more of that. Um, that's, that's all material that will continue to develop in the next two movies. Yes, absolutely. Um, you have all the stuff on the roof with Neo versus the agent where he first is able to like bend time and dodge the bullets, which is one of the most famous scenes in Hollywood history at this point. I mean, it's big here. We need to talk about bullet time, Sean, because bullet time is the big technological innovation of the Matrix movies because it is this idea that um, I'm reading the, the looking at the Wikipedia page on mm-hmm. Bullet Time and it actually makes a good argument that this goes all the way back to like 
pre-cinema stuff like the Mui Bridge horse, the Edward Mui Bridge uh, horse photos of like where you were able to photograph a horse and that's how they were able to prove that a horse while galloping does completely go off the ground. Um, it's all four of its hooves are off the ground at a certain moment in its gallop and you could only find that by photographing and slowing down time. And like bullet time is this like hyper version of that where it's three-dimensional and it's this extreme transformation of time and of space you go slow enough to see things that would normally be imperceptible but you also have a camera angle moving around the speed uh moving around the scene at a normal speed while everything else is slowed down infinitesimally um and the way they do this basically in the matrix is with this series of still cameras all around the subject that are following a path that is laid out by a computer ahead of time. Um, so the cameras are triggered at these very close intervals. So the action unfolds and then there's extreme slow motion while the viewpoint moves because the cameras are all around on a track aligned through laser targeting. Um, and then they use interpolation software and CGI to push it, put it all together. Um, and this is stuff that you can also do in fully virtual environments like video games and CGI movies and things like that. Um, but figuring out how to do it uh, ostensibly in live action is one of the big breakthroughs of this movie. And it is undeniably cool. Yeah, it's incredibly cool. It's it, like it is one of those like when you look at like the breakdown of how it is achieved. It's such a like very smart, like clever virtual like digital effect um because it's mostly in camera right they use like cg to sort of just like mm -hmm. massage it enough and i think the background is cg right but you I'm have to interpolate frames and like just make sure it's smooth but yes it is mostly an in-camera effect done with like digital assistance yeah. yeah um which is really really fucking cool and then the other like great innovation of bullet time is that it changed the world of video games forever because video games just like had bullet time i mean i feel like we still occasionally get it now but it was like particularly in that like original xbox generation it felt like every other video game whether it was a matrix game or not had some kind of bullet time mechanic you know going up to like fucking red dead redemption has bullet time in it you know like it's such a like it was such a boon to video games as shooters started becoming more popular on consoles which are not as easy to control on a console as it is for a computer with a keyboard and mouse did like be like oh, we can just slow down time and do cool shit and do just slow time shit in video games and it's a video game. So it's like, you don't need to, like, you can just do that. You don't need to worry about movie cameras and, and reality or any of that kind of shit. You just like make everything move very slowly in a video game and, and it works great. We talked about this a lot with the Star Wars prequels when we did those, Sean, but you really cannot understand the history of 21st century video games without grappling with oh, yeah. the Star Wars prequels and the Matrix trilogy. Those are like probably the two most influential film texts of the period on video games, right? Oh, absolutely. I would say particularly The Matrix. Like it, it's if you go back and look at like any media around or like like a lot of just like the random B games from that period, it's all just basically video games trying to do The Matrix in some way, shape or form. Um, like it's amazing to me that there are only the like a three if you count The Matrix Online. Uh, but you don't count that because it's kind of its own weird thing. There's only like two Matrix action games, two Matrix video games, and the Matrix and Path of Neo. Um, but there's like a million. It's basically the Matrix, but it's not the Matrix video games that came out in that period. Yeah, no, totally. And, you know, as you say, also just like 
ideas from the Matrix that get adapted into video games and then have their own lineage that follows on down the line on through today. Like you're talking about like, you know, Red Dead Redemption and Slowed Time. And there's a million versions of that mechanic that you still get in games today, right? Yeah, and it typically is always represented with the same kind of visual language of the bullet trails and that kind of stuff and the sound effects are all things that are either just pulled directly from the matrix or clearly using those as a jumping off point and trying to differentiate itself in some way but it's like while obviously the idea of slowing down time is not a thing that the matrix invented the way in which the matrix presents time slowed and specifically around the concept of shooting guns is just like it it, it's something that changed video games forever because they just pull that language directly from this film Yeah, no, 100%. And like the Star Wars prequels, both of these groups of filmmakers were also interested in video games. Like, George Lucas didn't make games himself, but he was really interested in empowering other people to take these ideas and run with them. And the Wachowskis were too. And so, you know, even if, like, the direct games that come out of that are not necessarily big in their own right, although for Star Wars, some of them are, like KOTOR and stuff... um, the the lineage that comes out of it it's not like these people were unaware that they might be pushing in that direction you know and i think that's super fascinating yeah what one of the other things of like the bullet time and the general use of slow-mo that is obviously also a bit inflected by the john woo thing in hong kong and like jackie chan would use slow-mo and stuff like that as well um but i feel like some of that is also where you see a lot of the anime influence because anime yeah because animation like by its very nature the fact that it's removed from the need of having like an assumed passage of time, which you have if you're just filming something with a camera, um, that like you are filming things that are passing in real time. Animation creates its own sense of time entirely through the juxtaposition of images removed from any like objective reality. So animation, and particularly Japanese anime, plays with slowing and speeding up moments of time constantly. And I think that's one of the things. This is also very true of Zack Snyder's like whole style is very oh, yeah. anime, anime influenced in that same way um and that's also the matrix it's one of like these kind of i think directorial like edges that they get that kind of distinguishes some of the matrix's visual style is them looking at a lot of stuff like ghost in the shell and akira and pulling in different kind of like filmmaking techniques they use there and animation is a lot more trivial to implement because it's natural to the form whereas like you have to be quite a bit more inventive to do it in live action. Um, but they came up with some really, really cool methods to replicate things that you would more commonly see in anime. Yes. Um, one last thing about the scene on the roof where, you know, the Neo does his bullet time thing is that that then ends with Trinity coming up to the agent and saying, dodge this and shooting him in the head. I have always loved and I respect Trinity for risking everything to make that one-liner. Yes. Knowing full well that the agents are very fast and the time it takes to say dodge this could totally backfire on her, but fuck it, she's got leather, she's got sunglasses, she's got a handgun. If she does not have a one-liner, that ensemble is not complete. Yes. I also do love that, like, low-key, Trinity is the first person to defeat an agent. Yes. In the history of, of the Matrix. Like, they say very definitively, nobody has ever been able to stand a chance. All we can ever do is run. Anyone that stands to fight them dies. Um, and obviously, like, she doesn't kill the agent because there's no way to kill an agent other than maybe... I mean, obviously, Agent Smith ends up surviving in the sequels, but he Agent Smith appears to be destroyed by Neo at the end of the film. But, like, she, like, resoundedly defeats that agent by killing the vessel that it's inhabiting. And... 
Like, I feel like there should have been maybe more of a comment on this, like, <laughs> holy shit, Trinity. Like, that's a first for the entire human race that you just defeated that agent and it went to you. Are you sure that you're not the one? Because that was fucking badass. Yeah, there sh- should have been a reference of that and, like, and you did a one-liner, yes. which really seems risky. That I don't know if that was a necessary risk. You know, maybe you could have shot him and then say, dodge this. But, you know, it just wouldn't have worked as well. So she's got to do it right. Yeah, or she could have, you know, she could have shot him in the head. Because dodge this after she already shot him doesn't really make sense. She could say it's like, I guess it was time you had a bullet. Like, it was your <laughs> bullet time. And then he was oh like, God. what? And it's like, trust me, it'll be a thing. Yeah. All right. Um, I love all this stuff with the helicopter. I love Neo on the fucking chain gun shooting all of the agents and being confident enough in his own aim to do that with Morpheus right there. Yes. Um, That's my favorite part. It's like he just fills that room full of bullets. It's like, you know, I think they try to show a little bit of Neo trying to divert the aim, but there's not a (laughs) lot of like shots to make it very clear that Neo is trying to like very specifically he's not hitting Morpheus. It, it does end up feeling a little bit like dub fucking luck that Morpheus is not just full of holes <laughs> by the end of that scene. That would be a very sad ending to the movie if, like, the chain gun is, like, smoking and, like, cooling down. And Neo kind of looks and goes, the fuck? <laughs> I hit him. Yeah, didn't, didn't yeah. think that one all the way through, did I? That scene looks so cool, yes. by the way. That's my favorite slow-mo in the whole movie, is all of the bullets dropping. and Because at that point, those sprinklers are going off, so there's water everywhere. And like when Morpheus breaks out, he's running, with like, and there's splashes everywhere. They do the bullet time where the bullet goes through his leg, and then he has to jump for Neo. That is one of the best constructed sequences in the movie. It's just electric. Yeah. There's that fantastic shot of the camera below the helicopter looking up as the like rain of bullet shells comes by it. Um, yeah. Oh, so good. good. Again, they 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 learned from John Woo. Uh-huh. Um cuz John Woo knows the value of a good bullet casing hitting the ground. Exactly. Um absolutely. Love all of that. I love, you know, they they drop onto the roof and everything. There's this weird thing where I think I got this idea in my head when I was a kid and it's never left me no matter how many times I watch this movie where when Neo is on the roof and he grabs the like rope he was attached to that's attached to the helicopter. What he's doing there is saving Trinity. He's going to pull Trinity Uh out of the helicopter. I always have this idea in my head that what Neo does is he grabs it and throws the helicopter into the building and explodes it. That's not what happens at all. What he's doing is he's bracing it so Trinity can grab on and then he pulls her up. But for some reason, I'm always like, this is the part where he grabs the helicopter and swings it like a fucking lasso into the building. Not what happens. But I will never not go into it thinking that's what happens. Like, like I don't have this specific he throws it but i always have like the thought of like oh he's like going to catch the helicopter in some way (laughs) um which then obviously is like utterly absurd even for the matrix it wouldn't make sense because like the fucking ceiling would collapse um even if neo could handle it and then and then trinity jumps out of it it's like that that's a much better idea yes trinity you just jump out of of the helicopter instead of trying to catch the helicopter it's still cool either way The explosion of the helicopter on the building, that's a great example of why the CGI being a little outdated doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Because you can tell that it's a little like low res or whatever. But what's so cool is that they get the idea of the glass like coming out like water and like 
pulsating and then shattering and that phenomenal shot of trinity coming at the camera while everything yes. explodes behind her i mean that is so that is the shot that you need the 4k for that shot yes. with yes. all the fucking pieces of glass and the fire behind her that is the one where like the high resolution i think made the biggest difference of like oh my god that that shot is amazing looking in 4k yeah and you know that shot might even be uh, a 2k upscale because it's an effect shot that's how good a shot it is mm-hmm. it's just so it's such an electric image that it doesn't matter what state the effects are in at the time it just plays and it's a it's a great example of how like the quality of like the effects technology at the time is so much less important than the direction yeah. of the image yeah absolutely. and the cinematography but no yeah absolutely again like i think I do think, like, I don't know if overall The Matrix is my favorite 4K disc, but if I wanted to do, like, a demo reel to show someone what 4K is, the last act of this movie has maybe the best material in any film I've seen mm-hmm. for it. Um, although Matrix Revolutions also has some stuff with rain at the end that uh, be, be excited for. It looks very good in 4K, because I've seen all of these on, on 4K before. So anyway, um, that's great. The real standout at the end of this movie, though, is running away from Smith and the whole final fight sequence. One, the Wachowskis know the greatest rule of action climaxes is you just have to keep piling on. So not only are they running from an agent, not only does Neo have to find another uh, you know, phone, not only is he going to try to fight Agent Smith, but also the Sentinels are coming for them and they have to like hit, yes. the, hit the EMP. So they pile it on. But man, Sean, uh, one day maybe, I will not be on the absolute edge of my seat, breathless, cheering for the movie when Neo decides to stand and fight. But that scene works on me about mm-hmm. as well as any action sequence in any movie in the history of film. When when Trinity disappears and Neo is there with Smith and they do a full-on Ennio Morricone standoff where like things are like blowing in the wind between them and Neo decides to fight and Morpheus looks and says, he's beginning to believe. I, I love And then the fight that comes is so fucking good. Yes. Yeah, this is also... It's shown in anime as fuck. Like the fuck, whole... Yeah. The whole, like, world-building thing of how everybody has, like, these sort of, like, superhuman powers, but then there's these group of bad guys who are, like, so overwhelmingly powerful that you don't even know how anyone could stand against them. Like, it's such a shonen... Like, Kimetsu no Yaiba is a good example. Like, everything does this, of of having the... Of, like, Frieza, you know? Of this bad guy that's, like, seems utterly untouchable like it's it's akaza showing up in the fucking mugen train kimes no yaiba movie it's that kind of moment that a shonen anime has where you are faced with an enemy they've set up to be like so inhumanly unbeatable you have no idea how anything could possibly stand against them and then that moment where the hero has to make a stand and has to fight is like the most exciting fucking shit ever um and and like not a lot of media i feel like constructs villains in that way quite like it's very different from how like other superpowered stuff like superhero stories and supervillains supervillains and superhero movies never have that kind of feel to them it's very particular i feel like to show in an anime and the this that's one of the things i think the matrix pulls um is that that attitude and oh my god it's just it's always so good. It's it's the like ultimate underdog story. Here is an enemy who is literally a machine. They like he like is part of the system of the reality that you are existing in. Nobody has ever defeated an agent except for maybe Trinity kind of just defeated one like <laughs> ten minutes ago, but we didn't really comment on that too much. And you're just gonna stand your ground and fight them. That's fucking cool. That's always gonna be fucking cool. 
But then the fight is so good. Yes. Like, honestly, the subway fight in The Matrix is far and away the best version of a hand-to-hand combat, like, martial arts scene I've ever seen in a Hollywood movie. Like, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily as good as, like, in an actual, like, Hong Kong movie or, like, you know, seeing Jet Li or Jackie Chan do some of this. But it is shockingly close for yeah. this kind of thing. And there are so many moves that are just burned into my brain. My favorite shot in any Matrix movie, close to in any movie, is the punch that Neo does that Agent Smith catches and then he pushes out his palm and hits him in the neck. Yes. Which is so good, Dragon Ball borrowed it. Uh-huh. In in uh, Resurrection F, they have Goku do that to Frieza. That's how fucking good that is that Dragon Ball borrowed from the Matrix. Yes. I'm sure that move is also borrowed from a Hong Kong movie that I'm not aware of. I appreciate but still, it, yeah. fuck, it's so good. Right, Sean? Yes, it's very Hong Kong of like, I think maybe that might be in a Jackie Chan movie because it's, it is definitely like, because it's the specific, like, it catches the punch and then he like sticks his fingers out and hits him like basically the Adam's apple and the like, ugh, like noise, yeah. the kind of gag that Agent Smith makes. It feels like it's a reference to something. Even if it's not, it, it, it like, it feels like it's so of that world um, very naturally. Yes, um, it, the whole fight is so well choreographed also with the, as you kind of pointing out earlier, that every character is, you know, choreographed around, like, kind of the idea of who the character is and the, like, ferocity and precision of Agent Smith with these just, like, rain of really heavy blows and him, like, you know, Neo barely dodging out of the way and the punch taking out a stone pillar behind him and stuff like that. Like it, Also it, anime as fuck. Yes, super, <laughs> super fucking anime. Um, the whole thing is incredible. I particularly just really love the how the fight ends of like Agent Smith getting Neo in a headlock and then just starts monologuing to him and it's like about like do you hear that, Mister Anderson? In the sound of inevitability, and he's just starts talking about all this shit. And then Neo has his my name is Neo line, and then fucking hits him up to the ceiling, and then does this big kung fu jump out of the subway rail. Um, is a perfect like coup de gras for that film for that whole fight scene. But the whole thing it is it's like a good piece of music. It is yes. so precise. There's like they have their first tussle. There's that moment when Neo just braces himself and knocks all of the dust off of his shoulders, uh-huh. and then he does the big move and does Morpheus's big like you know come at me, bro. So good. Um, I love how like staccato the fight is. How rhythmic it is around all of the like body parts hitting each other and like the music follows that the music is very like dun 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 and then it's all like these like whoosh 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 hit it's so like well done in that sense um i love the like flow of it where neo is like just getting there's that part where uh, he does the you know terrible cgi arms are just like hitting him over and over and over again Uh in the chest and neo's internal organs are just being you know liquefied um man i just every beat of it i think it is just electric filmmaking it is so good yeah absolutely i think i think it's like the rhythm of it is is the thing like it's it's the music it's the sound effects it's the huh, 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 like the sounds that keanu reeves and, and hugo weaving have to make um and and it's this very like deliberate it's thing of where it's almost i would like describe it as stiff but not in a bad way like it's very like precise and exact um and like every single move is feels very specific and kind of like everything is like oversold to this degree that you wouldn't normally get in a hong kong style movie um that i think but it 
creates a clarity to the movement and a specific like beat 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 kind of construction to the action scene that is very distinctively matrixy mm -hmm. yeah absolutely oh man oh, i love it to death and then it segues into the big chase sequence where he's going to try to find the phone which is intercut with all of the stuff with the sentinels it's and again I know every I know every line of this movie at this point. Like I can fucking quote you image by image the end of this film, and I am still on the edge of my seat. Like, mm -hmm. will Neo make it in time? What's going to happen when he gets shot by Smith? It hurts. You know, Trinity gives him the kiss. He gets back up. It is always so invigorating. He stops the bullets. Keanu Reeves's like reaction there, where he's like just takes the one bullet out of the air and looks at it, is one of those like. Yeah, this is why you get Keanu Reeves. He's mm -hmm. so good there. Um, I love he is like standing with one arm behind his back, just fending off all of Agent Smith's blows. Everything about this last stretch is just unbelievably good. Yeah, it's it's amazing, and it's particularly it's my favorite like payoff to a setup if a movie is the like Morpheus earlier in the movie having that great line of Neil saying, "Are you saying I can dodge bullets?" No, Neo. I'm saying that when you're ready, you won't have to. And then you get to the end of the movie and he doesn't have to dodge bullets because, like, reality itself is at his whims, right? Like, that's the whole point of him, like, sort of, like, reaching this sort of, like, state of enlightenment and being able to take control of the reality around him is that the agents are can, can bend the rules of where they're existing to their, like, utmost extremes, but they're still fundamentally confined by the rules of the system they exist in. Whereas, like, the point of the one or Neo is that he is able to eliminate the rules. He's able to do things that are physically impossible, like stop bullets in the middle of the air. And it's just such a, like, powerful visual image that, you know, pays off on that line that is so evocative of Morpheus saying, you're not going to have to dodge bullets. There'll be no point in dodging the bullets. Because when you're there, it'll it could you can make it so that as if the bullets had never fired. Because that's the degree to which you can express your will on the world in which you live um such a such a like powerful climax in in perfect visual image to kind of land that moment on and this is such a you know classic martial arts story to tell right the idea of you know when you hit that moment of zen that moment of power you know every reality will become malleable i mean fuck we talked about this with this was how you talked me through playing sekiro back in the day was like jonathan <laughs> yes. when you get good enough at it it won't feel fast and it doesn't right it's just mm -hmm. at a certain point that game feels slow if you know what you're doing um so it is this classic like martial arts or samurai stories all this kind of eastern fiction does this kind of stuff and i think what makes the matrix in in some parts so ontologically interesting to like academics is that it does this through this lens of technology and and neo literally seeing the code of the universe is how he actualizes this so it is this like you know form of storytelling that is as old as time you will find it in ancient chinese novels and stuff like that right um but also like it is through this prism of like hyper technological um reality here and it is it is so cool and it is so like evocative and provocative yeah like the only way they could have made that moment better is if when neo stood up his hair was like super spiky and shining gold <laughs> because it is it's I mean it's his super saiyan moment or yes. it's very yes. specifically it's ultra instinct is the same martial arts yes. concept in dragon ball super but it is the anime like hero coming back from the brink of defeat and now is like transformed it is so much more powerful than everybody else it's like if only they could have given like a super cool transformed form to Neo that you could sold a cool action figure of. 
well, now I feel like I need to do a cut. Oh, I have to do this now that I'm going to say it. Of that scene, but when Neo comes back up, the ultimate battle song from Dragon Ball Super <laughs> kicks in. Dun da dun da dun da dun da dun da dun. Yes. Yeah, that whole yeah, thing. Yeah, he's doing the one arm block. Uh, 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 yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh my god, that would be because it does feel like that's where the insert song would go, yes. right? Yeah, you just just get some uh, real good J Rock, like either that ultimate battle song or really just kind of any good J Rock, and you can put it in there and it will yeah. fit perfectly. Absolutely. All right. I mean, it is it is shocking to me how much the Matrix like operates on me the same way like the end of Gundam Build Fighters uh-huh. does, you know, that we talked about. Like it is it is shown in anime as fuck and in the best ways possible. So then the movie ends with uh, Neo because it all this movie also like just gets out of gets you out of the theater very fast from that climax. It knows it knows that principle of like if you have done something ludicrously cool at the end of your movie, you want people in the parking lot as soon as possible to be talking about it. Yes. So really, the last kid they 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 finish that Neo wakes up, kisses Trinity back, and then Keanu Reeves has the final speech. Where he talks about, uh, I'll just read it because it's good to analyze here. I know you're out there. I can feel you now. I know that you're afraid. You're afraid of us. You're afraid of change. I don't know the future. I didn't come here to tell you how this is going to end. I came here to tell you how it's going to begin. I'm going to hang up this phone. And then I'm going to show these people what you don't want them to see. I'm going to show them a world without you. A world without rules or controls, without borders or boundaries. A world where anything is possible. Where we go from there is a choice I leave to you. And Sean, I wrote in my notes two words. I wrote punk rock at the end of that. Because that is what that speech is. Especially with the ending is Neo getting up and flying like Superman. Mm -hmm. While Rage Against the Machine's song Wake Up plays over the credits. This movie ain't subtle. It's beautiful. Yes, and it's one of the more '90s moments in the film, um, in a good way. Like not in a way that makes me like roll my eyes, but it is very like of that kind of late '90s punk kind of uh, philosophy stuff. Um, yeah, and it works really well for me. I really like Rage Against the Machines. So you know when that comes yeah. up, I had forgotten that Rage Against the Machines plays over the credits of the Matrix, but I was not surprised when it started playing. I'm like, <laughs> oh yes, of course, oh. right? Of course, Rage Against the Machines plays over the credits of the Matrix. Yeah, it has to. It has to. It's uh, it's so good. Yeah, it's and again, I don't know how you could watch that final speech Neo makes and come out of this going, "Yep, this movie confirms my conservative worldview." <laughs> right? Yeah. Like it is. It's so left. It's so. You know, it's kind of like I feel like the opening hours of Final Fantasy VII, which are like more politically like mm-hmm. out there than I think were maybe grappled with at the time, and like the remake restarted some of those conversations. And honestly, it's one of the reasons. It's one of my little disappointments. With Final Fantasy VII is I kind of want to see Avalanche finish the fucking job at a certain point. Yeah. Right? It is that kind of feeling. Um, it's so it's such good stuff. Um, yeah. I love it. The one piece of... So we talked about some of the, the the musical choices like Rage Against the Machine. We also just need to give a shout out to the musical yes. score by Don Davis. Which, this is really the... The Matrix trilogy is still really the biggest thing Don Davis has ever done as a composer. But it's so good. I The music of the Matrix is so... It's not complicated, but it's really good. And it is such in line with the mise-en-scene of these movies. It is such a good companion to their sense of like movement and kineticism. And it gives it this like grandeur and orchestration. I just, it's really good stuff. Yeah, it's a phenomenal uh, movie score. And it, 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 it's the same for the sequels. Like the scores for all three of these movies are yeah. fantastic. And they're very distinctive. You know, like it's pulling on a lot of different sort of very underground music genres that are not, I mean, were not and still not quite common. 
um and it pulling all those elements together to make like like the music of the movie has the same kind of like underground punk philosophy edge to it that the movie itself has um and and yeah it's it's i i'm always kind of surprised at how much how of how good the matrix soundtracks are because every once in a while i'll like get the urge to listen to a couple of the songs that i really like and then i'll end up listening to some more and be like oh yeah no like these whole soundtracks are just really good and very distinctly the matrix um like there's just no other movie soundtracks that sound like these yeah absolutely um I've already said this, but like one of the things they're doing with Matrix Resurrections is pretty much all of the creative leads are different. It's not the same composer or cinematographer or editor or any of that, which is probably intentional, I have to imagine, because I the more I see for Matrix Resurrections, I'm actually leaning towards I don't even know if it's going to be in the same continuity as what we've seen so far, which would be very interesting to me. Um, but certainly we have plenty more to enjoy from the next two, because they're pretty much the creative team is identical across all three of these movies. Well, they um, filmed two and three at the same time right because those movies came out like six months apart yeah mm -hmm. they did it they they shot back to back um that's why you have um gloria foster in two and not three right but they did shoot as one big block basically yeah yeah so. and then they followed the the back to the future two and three model of doing them together six months apart which then later we got the like two movies a year apart which is how like harry potter and twilight and stuff did it um and then we eventually got the two movies but we only made one <laughs> we never got to the second one yes. which is like the uh, what is it divergent series yes, something the like divergent that yeah. series yes okay yeah anyway uh but the matrix sequels are good so anything else to say about matrix one before we wrap up this uh appropriately long podcast today two thumbs up it's a great movie i'm very glad to have an excuse to go back and watch it because i said it's been a long time it's been probably not yeah. quite 10 years but i think like maybe eight years or so since the last time i watched this movie and and I want to give another shout out to the 4K Blu-rays because they are really phenomenally good. So if people yes. can can watch 4K Blu-ray stuff uh, and you don't have these, um, now would be a good time to to get it and watch it because the fourth movie is coming out soon. So even if you can't, the 4K Blu-ray set has standard Blu-rays in them that do have the same master. Oh, that's so good. if you have just a normal uh, Blu-ray player, you could get the 4K set. It's pretty cheap now. And you would have the 4K discs in case you ever do have 4K, but the Blu-rays in the set are based on the same masters. That's not always the case with 4K sets. It's one of the weird things. Sometimes they just recycle old masters for the standard Blu-ray, which sucks. They did not do that for The Matrix. It is the the, the good masters. So yes, which again, especially for this first movie, that is a that's a big fucking deal because. Yeah, this movie did not look that good on DVD. No, I'd love. I need to go find. I I'm I know I had that movie on DVD. I must have it somewhere. Um, I found. I have my old D because the Matrix was most people's first DVD. Yeah. It was the one that it because DVD had existed for like two years before the Matrix, but the Matrix coming to DVD was what made DVD take off. Um, and so I think everyone. That's one of the snap case ones. Everyone had a copy of the Matrix yeah. on DVD. I, I need to like, find that thing and break it out, assuming that the disc still works, because you know DVDs are not the most yeah. robust things in the world. But I, I because yeah. like I was shocked, even though I knew that they had done a lot of work to sort of like correct the color stuff and all that. I was still shocked by how different the movie looked than than I remembered. Just on not on the four K level, just on the way that the movie looked fundamentally, um, uh -huh. in a big improvement. Yeah, absolutely. So next time, uh, well, not next week, but soon on the podcast, probably in November, we will get to The Matrix Reloaded. We'll get to The Matrix Revolutions. Um, I got two Xbox games over here I also need to, yep. to play at some point here. 
Yep, absolutely. Uh, I am. I am very excited. We've got lots of good stuff coming next week. Will be our next weekly suit Gundam, where we will be talking about Reconquista in G, the yes. as of now final work in the Gundam series by Yoshiyuki Tomino, uh, and that will be episode three ninety nine of God. this year podcast, and the week after that will be four hundred, which we have I think a fun plan for. Yes, we're coming up on four hundred episodes, which has been a little bit since I said this on the podcast, but I'll say it again: that's too many episodes. 